Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters dive deep into beloved fantasy lore, characters, themes, theories, and more. We are covering chapters 20 through 27 of Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaros today. But before we begin this deep dive, please do listen closely to our content warning. Most importantly, spoilers for all of Iron Flame. We may be focusing on chapters 20 through 27 today, but we are bringing the whole book into the conversation. That includes everything from Iron Iron Flame, Fourth Wing, and anything else that Rebecca Yaros has said, it's all on the table, folks. So if you don't know why Chapter 25 will forever make me laugh, then please go finish reading the book. Come back and we will be here when you're done. JFB! And of course, we have to let you know that this podcast is rated R. We of Fantasy Fangirls, we're adults who say adult things with adult words about an adult book. We are covering one of the seven wonders of the spice world today, which is shower sex, and I will not be holding back. So please be mindful of little listening ears. Last thing before we jump into our Iron Flame episode four deep dive. If you love Fantasy Fangirls and you want to support us in making this dream our livelihood, and you also want want more content, more community connection, discounts on merch, early access to episodes, and more, then please check out our Patreon. We have two membership tiers, Cadets and Dragon Riders, and our Patreon community is so freaking incredible. I think they win best Patreon community in the entire world. I'm not biased or anything. We just hosted our December monthly Q&A live, and our Discord is always popping. And Dragon Riders are loving, I love how much they love it, the early access to episodes and ad-free episodes. Plus, they get to vote on things like our archive sections. Lots of stuff happening there. If you want to join the Patreon party, the link is in the show notes or YouTube captions. And really and truly, thank you all so much for helping us bring these episodes to you. It means the world to us. And now it is time to enter Violet's Venom Dreams. (laughs) Who needs transition music? You got me. (laughs) Let's begin this episode deep dive with Battle Brief, aka Nicole's summary of what happened happens in chapters 20 through 27 of Iron Flame. Everyone buckle up. We got a lot going on here. Chapter 20. Arriving at Samara, Violet is nervous to see her shadow daddy again, considering that the last time they saw each other, they said some not so very nice things. But that tall glass of water comes striding over to her and forces her hand, major air quotes, and asks her to ask him to kiss him. And shockingly, she says, okay. But as these two go at it in the middle of the courtyard, who is that clearing her throat? It's our second most favorite older sister behind Lexi, Mira Sorengale. And guess who's stationed at Samara now? After Zayden leaves for his shift, a not at all judgy Mira takes Violet to go throw knives at shit. You know, sisterly bonding. But as these two are destroying targets, Violet begins to ask some conspicuous questions like the wards, how they work, what is alloy made of, and other things that are way above her clearance. Mira immediately knows that something is up with her little sis, but Violet keeps prying until she finally hits the point where she asks asks Mira the not at all pointed question, what if you saw Wyvern and there's a whole war we know nothing about? Smooth, Violet. Mira brushes off this highly treasonous conversation. You're not sleeping well. There's a T for that. Love, treason, and gaslighting. What a good pair. And as Violet relents, Mira sends her to bed. Later that night, a shirtless Zayden slides into bed, causing my heart rate to spike. Violet confesses that she's almost told Mira everything, expecting a very angry Zayden to chastise her. But no, he stays quiet and lets her offload all of her stress. A feeling much better now, Violet starts starts to ask questions and is shocked when Zayden actually answers them. And these two begin having a normal conversation and begin 
can sort of healing their trust issues. But Violet is exhausted and cuddling. Zayden reminds them both that she still loves him. Chapter 21. Back in Navarre, it's time for history class, but leadership is being called to the front due to an attack. So Devera is subbing. But unlike my favorite substitute teacher, she's not rolling in a TV. Nope, she's ready to drop some knowledge and challenges all the students to think about what were the costs of unification. Basically, she continues her Teacher of the Year award. Later that day, it's time for sparring challenges. And after avoiding him multiple times, Dane finally seizes his chance to talk to Violet on the mat. Dun, dun, dun. Dane fights Violet, sort of, and he admits to giving his father her memory. But just like one, and it was just like a flash of a memory. Then just because it's Dane and he needs to have the last word, he drops a bomb on Violet. Your mother is the one who carved the 107 scars onto Zayden's back. Woof, at least someone's telling the truth around here. Violet is ushered away by Rihanna, who starts to piece things together. The rest and crew saw something they were not supposed to. But look, Arik comes into the picture, who's broken his wrist and needs to see the healers. He and Violet leave sparring and begin to discuss how Cam, I mean Arik, is supposed to be on his 20th birthday tour. But wait, in a this was not on my bingo card moment, Arik admits to knowing about the venom. Chapter 22, we're in Violet's dream and she's running away from the sage. But uh-oh, the sage takes away her gravity and yanks her off their feet and they have a little chat. Huh. Sure, that doesn't mean anything. It's Saturday, and Zayden and Violet are on an adventure to Bezgaius Forge. How romantic. But who's that standing in the hallway? It's Varish, and oof, die. It's time for Violet's interrogation assessment. Zayden tries to fight it for her, but it, she accepts after Varish threatens to take away Violet's leave for next weekend. So after getting her hands tied up in the middle of the open hallway, because that's not sus, she's led off to the RSC interrogation room. Chapter 23, field trip time to the interrogation chambers. Oh, Way. After each of our squad members gets a secret phrase, they are instructed by Grady to eat and drink and then share a secret with each other. Because, oh yeah, they're also going to try to beat that one out of them too. Our squad shares a secret, Violet needing to do a do-over because her first one sucks. The squad almost drinks the juice they were given like they've learned nothing from land navigation but luckily brilliant fucking woman stops them they enter the scenario and get the absolute shit kicked out of them again and again Varish enters and feeling like this is taking too long brings in his protege it's god fucking damn it dane chapter 24 dane walks in and is pissed that a member of his wing is injured and in interrogation but god fucking damn it Varish comes in with the knife twist you're going to practice your signet on Violet. Don't you want to know what she's been hiding from you and why she chose Zayden over you? Damn, Varish sucks, but he's good at his job. But just as Dane is about to reach for Violet with two hands, Violet says, no. And like a decent fucking human being, he listens to consent and walks out. A disappointed Varish then, not at all overreacting, punches Violet's shoulder out of her socket. Later, she wakes face to face with Nolan, who has been sent to mend Violet so that Varish can literally torture her again and again and again. All signs point to this guy is really trying to kill her. Nolan helps clear the hallway and our squad starts their escape plan. Sawyer melts the hinges off the door as they tell Violet they want to know what she's hiding, even if it puts them at risk. They run out of their interrogation chamber and are face to face with another door, but Violet's knife is starting to tingle and it unlocks the door. How'd that happen? With a confused look towards this vibrating knife, terrible sex toy idea, by the way, they start to run out and in true Finding Nemo fashion, escape. 
Agape! Chapter 25. Professor Grady is waiting outside, basically on a lawn chair with pom-poms, and is like, hey, you did it! Our squad gets another patch. Later that week, they're on their way to Battle Brief, but there's quite a commotion happening inside. On each of the seats, there is a piece of paper letting everyone know that Zolia, the poor Emil city where the Griffin Flyers College is located, has fallen due to blue fire dragons. That order is important. But in true Bezgaeth fashion, no one knows if this is real or not. Markham comes in with the triple D. Discredit, deflect, and distract. And boy, oh boy, does he have a distraction ready. It's the boy who lived, Jack fucking Barlow. And despite looking all innocent as he joins his squad, our team knows he is definitely going to try to kill Violet again. Chapter 26. Well, it's time to continue on with class, I guess. I'm sure nothing more will happen. Oh, just a three drift attack on Samara that left one rider severely wounded. Our girl Violet is freaking out just as Zavera shoots Violet a knowing look and scratches the left side of her neck, the side that Zayden's rebellion relic is on. Violet Violet sprints out of the class, meaning Taryn in the courtyard, but Bodhi running after her gives her his flight jacket so she won't get chilly, and Violet and Taryn leave Bezgaeth. Most stressful day of hooky ever. Chapter 27. <gasps> An absolute beside themselves, Taryn and Violet make it to Samara in record time, and this place looks battered. Violet runs to the sparring gym after getting a tip-off from Mira that Zayden is in there. Violet bursts in to find Zayden in mortal peril! Wait. No, he's sparring. Violet steps into his sight and losing her fucking mind, Zayden scoops her up, taking her into the bathing chambers. <sighs> he turns on the cold water and Violet, for the second time in this book, is part of a polar plunge that she did not ask for. But the shock of the cold water is enough for her mind to be her own again, no longer being overtaken by Taryn's emotions. Zayden shows Violet that he indeed had an ouchie, but he was mended after the scribe report went out. <sighs> These two have a charged moment. Violet undoes her hair, bringing Zayden to his <laughs> knees. Very on brand for this podcast. And bang, bang, bangity bang. I said a bang, bang, bangity bang. Shower sex has entered the chat. But after this passionate, steamy, and wet moment, cause the aqueducts that Zayden breaks, which is hot. Zayden Ryerson is ready for round two, but alas, Violet is already throwing on her clothes. It's time to go meet up with some Griffin Flyers. Now let's don our signet power and talk about key insights, reflections, foreshadowing, and of course, our favorite theories in the stretch of chapters here. All right, so let's kick it off in Samara. First things first, in our episode two, I speculated how the contraband got in Taryn's saddle, and many of you pointed out this part of the book, where Taryn explains that Bodhi is actually the one who attaches the bags to the saddle before Taryn puts it back on. So there you go. A reminder that I don't remember details of the book and do make mistakes sometimes, like the air wielder's actual purpose with Nolan for episode three. A lot of you brought that up as well, so I did not even think about that being a possibility of the air wielder like holding Jack in the air so that he didn't channel from the ground. I was like, absolutely. He's getting closer to the soul, 100%. But anyway, point is, Bodhi is the one who puts the weapons on the saddle for Taryn, and that is a mystery that is not so much a mystery, now closed. <laughs> oh, gotta laugh at ourselves sometimes. Anyway, Violet is so caught up in Zayden with her tunnel vision, like when she first, you know, arrives in Samara here, and, you know, she's referring to him as her horizon where nothing else exists beyond. But I got to say this girl, if she did notice anything beyond him, she would have seen her sister. And also, does this verbiage about nothing existing beyond him feel just like a tiny bit ominous? I don't know if 
I'd use the word ominous. It feels very romantic. Like that feels like more more like that romanticy language. Why are you laughing? <laughs> I'm curious though. Why does it feel ominous to you? I mean, like we know that they are absolutely each other's worlds. And I think this ties again into like you'll be the death of me. And they really do have such tunnel vision for one another where everything else doesn't really matter only one another. And I think that it's a little bit ominous. I think that's going to come into play massively now that we have Ven and Zayden. But I got to say this, Zayden, my guy, you could have given Violet just a tiny bit more information when you're walking towards her and saying she's going to be sleeping in someone else's room tonight if she doesn't act fast. Like, it's her sister. You could have given her that bit of information instead of just the someone else. It's her sister. Maybe Violet does want to stay with her. It's Violet with Zayden, so I don't think that's actually true. But maybe two, two things I will say here. I think one, I think he's being a little selfish because he does that sometimes. I think he's being a little selfish where he's not giving her the full explanation. So that way she does choose him. But secondly, I love you, Lexi. You are my favorite older sister that has ever walked this planet in the entire world. But if Zayn Ryerson was like, hey, the option is to sleep with me or in Lexi's room, I love you. I would choose Zayden. I can't blame you on that one. I probably would too, actually. <laughs> but it's the choice choice of the matter. That is the point. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. I will give you that one. We don't really get an angry sex scene, really. More on that in chapter 27 when we cover that later on in the stretch. But an angry makeout scene is delicious still. I love this shit. The fact that they go at it in the middle of the courtyard, it says a lot about the writers will, you know, we could die at any moment culture. Like, you know, they're very like, oh, walk out of each other's rooms the next morning and no one really bats an eye. I, I on the other hand, though, I would have been so self-conscious. Like, I am not, I'm not like a against PDA by any means, but like this type of going at it in the middle of the open, I would have been like, oh God, this is terrifying. But I love Zayden saying, fuck the show. <sighs> this man brings me to my knees. I can't even say it any other way. I love him so much. This like f- makes me fucking melt. I love that he's at the point now with her where he does not mind admitting how much control, how much he loses it with her, how much lure she has over him. And man, do I love a he wants her more trope. Ugh. And Rebecca knows how to write one. It's good. I also just love how it's like, oh, for fuck's sake is what breaks apart the kiss. It's such a sibling move. I can totally picture Zayden and Violet just making out completely lost in each other because that's how these two fighting lovebirds are. And there's, you know, a crowd of people just rolling their eyes, but at the same time, unable to look away. And then boom, her older sister is there. It's just such a sibling move. I love it. This is 100% something you would do. Like, without a doubt. I know. You know, (laughs) or Lexi. You would also catcall extremely loudly. Which, speaking of, let me just share a quick Lexi story. So, in high school, I was the lead in Bye Bye Birdie. And in this scene that I was doing, you have to, like, you know, change on stage. This is during the Nicole. Lovely yeah, the Nicole song. is taking her clothes off on a stage. That is what we're saying here. <laughs> I am a sophomore in high school. <laughs> That's an important note here. And all of a sudden, I hear this extremely loud cat call from the audience and it's Lexi and my dad swats her leg. (laughs) That is your sister. 
and I almost broke on stage. I thought that was so funny and mortifying at the same time. So thank you for that core memory. Oh, you're so welcome. It's That's how I support, you know? Mira entering our story stationed at Samara. You know, it wasn't a surprise at all, at least to me. I had hoped and speculated that she would be stationed wherever Zayden is. And hey, it's so nice to see her again. And just for all of us as readers to spend time with Violet's older sister. At first, I was a little bit confused about why they would station Mira at Samara because her signet power is extending wards and Samara is an outpost that has one of the strong wards there is. But Mira does explain later that because it has one of the biggest power supplies for the wards, if it falls, that means a giant portion of the border is now vulnerable. So Mira was brought here to help with the increased likelihood of attacks and to keep the wards intact. But I'm also wondering if her presence in Samara is why there seems to be more energy in the air. There's some descriptions throughout the stretch that make it seem like there's more power this visit around. So I had to wonder if she's like the connection or if it's something else to that effect. I just picked up on that. Maybe it's nothing, but thought about it. Oh, that's a good catch. I always was wondering if she was stationed at Samara to keep an eye, a closer eye on Zayden and Violet. I don't think she knowingly knew that was her reasoning for moving there, but like Varish and Atos and or Atos were going to like interrogate or question her later after she's been there for a while. That That is definitely a possibility. You know, it's funny because I think about Mira and she probably has the, a similar relationship to Atos that Violet originally did before, you know, he went and tried to kill her. However, I do not see Mira liking Barish in the absolute slightest. Like, she would fucking hate that guy. But she probably knows of him, but I don't think she knows him. That's my guess. Yep. That would be my guess, too. Zayden reminds Violet to keep her shields up around her sister. And gosh, this is just one more reminder that Violet can't trust those she loves most. That would be so hard to hear where it's like, hey, shields up with your sister. You know, like with Nolan is one thing that we've already talked about where it's like, Violet, you really need to, like, you might be able to trust him with your life, but that's not enough anymore. But she loves her sister. She trusts her sister with all of her heart and she still has to put her shields up. And again, that's just showing again, she cannot trust anyone, which is going to be a big theme later on in this stretch. When Violet contemplates if Zayden is actually taking the bags to her room, she wonders if he's actually just leaving with the bags that are filled with stolen weapons, remember, and in the process having her distract Mira. And my question for Violet is, why can't it be both? She's really hung up on him essentially tricking her here. And it's like, well, I think that he can be doing something for her while also seizing an opportunity. That's her having like those negative feelings and thoughts towards him and his real purposes here that I just, it's not, I think it's like, girl, it can be both. It can be both. I do definitely agree. I think that passage is there to almost show how much she still distrusts him. I mean, even later in this passage, she says to Mira, I I don't trust him, even though she's in love with him, which... I agree with Mira when she's like, that's unhealthy to start with, which we'll get into that later. But I think it's more to show her distrust of him still and how she always thinks he has an ulterior motive keeping her in the dark, which I, woof. I love this sisterly talk about Zayden. First of all, the, ugh, let's go throw knives at shit. I I just love that line. And, you know, like big sisters do, Mira is definitely judging Violet for falling in love with Zayden Ryerson of all people. (laughs) if you've ever like outrightly judged anyone I've ever dated but this does feel like a very older sister or older sibling I'll even say move for sure everything she says about quote you're not just fucking him you're falling for him and how she like crinkles her nose like she smells something bad or quote she says the word love like it's 
poisonous. First and foremost, LOL, this is extremely supportive shit from an older sibling, but it is here to show us how different Zayden and Violet's relationship is from any other relationship in writer culture. Even their mother, who loved their father. I don't think we have any doubt about that. I bet there wasn't a lot of like warm and fuzzy romantic moments that they shared, especially in front of their children, I'm assuming at least. So that does make a lot of sense that Mira is so, I'm going to say, icked out by the love and the gooey gooey mushy mushy that Violet is showing Zayden. It does, however, make me wonder, do you think that Mira is ever going to have a love interest in these books? I definitely do think so. However, I will say I read this part not so much as her attitude toward love, but her attitude towards Zayden. She is fully in the we hate marked ones camp and blames his dad for killing their brother because guess what? As far as she knows, his dad actually shot their brother to death. We have to remember that here. We don't know if that's actually what happened, but that is what everyone thinks, including Mira. And I'm not going to lie. I would definitely have a very serious talking to you too, little one, if you were suddenly sucking face and falling in love with the son of our brother's killer who started a whole rebellion. Yes. Even if you did look as delicious (laughs) as Zayden Ryerson. Like... (laughs) I would sit your ass down and be like, Nicole. (laughs) You'd buy me a one-way ticket out of there and you'd be like, you're never going back. Oh my gosh. I will say, I do not envy Violet in this scene. I'm like, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of these characters as much as possible because I do think that they get a lot of flack in this book from people on the interwebs. But putting myself in Violet's shoes in this scene, if we had a brother, which we don't not a blood related brother but we have someone who is extremely extremely close to us Michael who is basically the brother in our lives which by the way shouts to you Michael because he listens to the podcast he's so supportive he loves the series and we just really appreciate your support thank you getting the text from Michael saying that he was reading fourth wing was one of my favorite texts I've received all year we love you Michael but if Michael was perceived dead Right after I say that, (laughs) real hard left turn there. (laughs) If Michael was perceived dead and it turns out that he was alive and you didn't know, and you guys are closer in age, so you guys, especially growing up, were always, you know, a really tight knit pair. If you didn't know, but I did, I could never keep that from you. That would be painful. So I don't blame Violet for wanting desperately to share this information with her sister. You know, this line in particular, it's so gut-wrenching, but it feels so necessary in the context of Violet and Mira talking here. Quote, not telling Mira that Brennan is alive just might make me the worst person on the continent, unquote. Violet has very good reasons to have to keep these secrets, as we all know, but now she is keeping the same secret that she was so mad at Zayden for keeping from her, which the biggest one was that her brother is alive. This would mess with anybody's head. I just like, I cannot emphasize enough what Violet is going through and how messed up in the head she's got to be with all of this. Honestly, I'm shocked she didn't tell Mira flat out right. Like, again, that takes insane amounts of control over your mental faculties. It's amazing. So I know that you're not supposed to know about RSC until you enter this second year class, but I am starting to wonder if part of the reason that they don't want people to know is they don't want people to know their tactics, which apparently they haven't switched up in years, or at least, you know, until this year with adding the serum. But the fact that Mira, who graduated Multiple years ago, Lexi did the math at one point. She also knows about the two map mindfuck that they give them in land nav. It really just makes me think that this class about war strategies should really switch up 
their strategies. I mean, you know, why fix what's not broken, right? And it's still a secret. So why reinvent the wheel every year when you just don't have to? I will say, however, I'm surprised that the Book of Brennan doesn't give more warning about RSC. It goes to show just how secretive it is. He does say in one of the epigraphs from the Book of Brennan that there is a particular class that you just kind of kind of survive through, right? But he doesn't give any further descriptions about it, at least as far as we know. And I think that's really telling there that he doesn't even include it in his super secret book. There's another line here from Mira that I really perked my attention. Mira hasn't seen runes like Violet's Tearish Daggers, quote, in dot, 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 a while. I was thinking maybe it's reference to knowing something about runes or some kind of connection to Brennan. But then I remembered that their mom has her own dagger with an alloy-infused hilt and a tears rune in the handle. So I'm guessing that Mira is referencing here to their mom's dagger, and she hasn't seen that in a while. I did not think about Mama Sorengale's dagger. That would make sense, because this line also really stood out to me. I feel like anytime an ellipses is used in this story, it is super purposeful. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, the, the, my first thought, because I wasn't thinking Mama Sorengale, my first thought was like, maybe their dad had one, given how much research he was doing on this stuff. I do love that it also says, quote, her gaze drops to my dagger and she looks concerned. Concern feels like such a specific word choice here. I, is it concern that her sister is using daggers from a region that is known for starting a rebellion? Does she recognize the runes on them? Or even is she trying to figure out the runes on them? Does she know about runes? We don't know. Is it just because she figures that maybe Zayden, who is tearish, obviously, gave her the runes and she's concerned that her little sister is head over heels with this man who she thinks is going to break her heart? Why do you think concern was on her face? I think that it is primarily about that tearish culture and her prejudice against them. Again, that goes right back to her really being against the marked ones at this point in the story. And it's another illustration of the connection between Zayden and Violet. They're not just kissing. He is bringing her bags to his room. He is making custom daggers for her. Like This is a full-blown relationship that they're in. And her sisterly spidey tenses are like, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> is that I a thing? I, sister, I, don't, sister, I don't know where that came spidey. from, but... <laughs> I need to hear when those have gone off in our <laughs> lives. I'm curious now. So I mentioned this in our fourth wing deep dives, but I want to mention it here again. I love these little moments, these little one-off sentences about Violet's constant struggle and being in pain. For those of us like Lexi and myself who are reading this and do not have chronic illness or chronic pain, it is such an important reminder for us readers that this is a normal everyday occurrence for Violet. Lines like, quote, I throw another dagger wincing when I'm not as careful as I should be on my aching knee. And the line about, quote, breaking bones is a Tuesday for me. In a health.com article, Rebecca Yaros mentioned that there's no decision that you ever make that you don't factor in your chronic illness or your chronic pain. And it's lines like this where it's that show don't tell again, that really embodies that again, we need as people who are reading this, who do not have those chronic illnesses to remind us that this is something Violet deals with. Also, it is such a wonderful moment of representation for people who do have EDS and other chronic illnesses who feel very seen in this book. It's just, I love little moments like that sprinkled out throughout the story. I do as well.
well. Poor Violet. She wants to share this big secret with her sister, but she knows that she can't. But she also does need to do her own version of a vibe check with Mira here. And in this instance, Mira fails the vibe check big time. Can't even imagine how hard it must be for Violet, who's interacting here with her sister, knowing their brother is alive, who Mira was particularly close with, and she just can't say anything. You know, Venon and Wyvern, they are in imminent danger, and she wants Mira to be prepared for what is coming for them in literally a matter of months. And Violet wants to share this heavy weight of the world with her sister, which is such a natural thing to want to do with someone who you're that close with. And Violet actually does ask Mira if she believes what's in the reports, which definitely catches Mira's attention and not in a good way. I love it that moment when she says that to Mira and Mira, you know, she puts up her sound shield and then she gives her the look and the look <laughs> is literally in italics. Everyone, I'm not even going to say everyone of the sibling, everyone who is close to anyone on this planet knows the look. Like I can close my eyes and picture you giving me the look immediately. <laughs> I I can picture the look that you give me too. Like we, I know exactly what it looks like. And it's like, uh-oh. And it's so subtle. I love it. <laughs> and then wait, what? Mira saw Wyvern? Again, I love Mira so much. Wyvern look different from dragons. Now, we don't know the distance that she saw or the distance that it was between her and the wyvern. But wyvern, just as a friendly reminder, here's your little anatomical reminder of what dragons and wyvern look like. Wyvern have two front legs, I'm going to call it, but that are attached to their wings. Every single dragon you have seen in a movie, a TV show, Game of Thrones, that is all wyvern, not dragons. Don't get me started on that. I will hop on a high horse again. But dragons have four legs and two wings coming out of their back. Now, again, we don't know how far away it was that Mira saw these wyvern, but you'd think that little four, four little feet would kind of give it away. I can't give Mira any flack here because yes, there is that difference, but it seems like very few people even know that difference. And it really is like just from a glance, because even Violet, when Vi Wyvern are fairly up close, like she immediately, her first thought is always a dragon because they look very similar to dragons. And for someone like Mira, who does not know that Wyvern even exists, why would she not think it's a dragon? Like, why in the world would she not automatically put two and two together as that being a dragon? You make a really good point, because even at Russin, the whole Marked One squad was like, oh, look, dragons. And Violet was like, one, two, two legs, wyvern. Like, she, it even took her a second. So that's a great point. I will say this, though. I was shocked, shocked when Violet told her. Like, what if you saw Wyvern? I was like, oh shit, we're we're having this moment now? In chapter 20? Holy crap. I agree. And then it's a little bit anticlimactic, which is actually good because it's like, wow, this is really happening fast in this book here. In this moment, after Violet essentially tells Mira what's going on beyond the borders, but just attaches a question mark to the end of it, so technically she's not really telling her, Mira is both brushing Violet off and giving her a warning. Writers have to be solid, so she makes an excuse for why her sister is saying treasonous things. And at the same time, she's essentially saying, you got to stop talking about this stuff because that's so dangerous. So you mentioned in the battle break that she's kind of gaslighting Violet here. And while I do believe she 
is she's doing it – she's sweeping this under the rug for Violet's safety more than yeah. anything here. I think you're 100% right. And so reading this for the first time, I have a question for you, Lex. Did you believe Mira and really think that she didn't know anything or did you think that she was hiding stuff? When I first read this, I really did wonder if she knew more than she was letting on and that this was her way to shut Violet up. Like she really did, like I said, sweep this under the rug and kind of just put Violet to bed here. And that was – kind of like, I'll call it like a yellow flag where it's like, wait, is she, does she know more than we think that she does? Later, we do find out that she absolutely did not know, but it definitely kind of planted that seed of questioning, like, does she know? Does she not know when I was reading this part for the first time? Is that how it was for you? It was very similar. I almost thought that it was like, oh, she knows more, but she doesn't know all. I didn't think she knew about the wyverns and stuff like that, but I did think that she knew that leadership was hiding things that she just hasn't figured out yet. Now, obviously that was... Not the case, but I think that, uh, yeah, I think yellow flag is the perfect way of putting that. It's time to talk about a pretty popular theory on the interwebs. There are a lot of mentions in this book and in Fourth Wing about Zayden and siblings. Like this passage, quote, Zayden could never understand. He doesn't have a sister. Now, a lot of people have speculated that this is foreshadowing or Rebecca Yarrow's like wink, wink, hint, hinting that he really does have a sibling. And I do not think Zayden knows he would have a sibling. He has never outright lied to Violet. He's been very upfront about that. And I believe him entirely. That is true. But if he doesn't know he has a sibling or even a half sibling, we know his mom left when he was 10. So maybe she went and had a kid with another person. That is something I could totally see happening in this book. You know, I never thought of that, but I bet you're right. Like, I really do think that's right, that he probably does have a half sibling. And we know that we are going to learn more about his mom. I think that Rebecca has even confirmed that later in the series, we will meet his mom. I would not be surprised whatsoever if he did have a half sibling. Or when we're talking about the sibling talk, Jack now calls him a brother. So maybe it's more about, you know, now he has Venom siblings. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying those words. <laughs> I hate that. I hate it so much. But you're right. At the very end of this book, he says, welcome to the family, brother. So, I don't like it. I don't like it one mm-hmm. bit. We get the first mention of a silver scar across Zayden's heart, and Violet is speculating if he got an resin. Oh my god, I love this. So after they arrive at Arisha, we do get this confirmation technically in chapter two, but we get it officially later on in part two of the book. After they arrived in Arisha, this is after the fight at Resin, Zayden took responsibility for Violet by the way of a tearish custom by marking yourself. This is all of the scars on his back. We get this confirmation even from Lilith where she says it's a tearish custom and then Violet cuts her off, which God damn it, Violet, I wanted to know the end of that sentence. But this one is right on his heart while all the other ones are on his back and I melt. <laughs> I melt and shit like that. I want to address that there is understandably some criticism among readers about Violet and her inability or at least difficulty to keep secrets. And we really need to come to her defense here. She even acknowledges that Zayden is right not to trust her, but her explanation in the scene with her and Zayden in bed, it gets to the heart of it. We've talked at length about how Violet's world turned upside down and why her feelings and behavior make sense for her character. And I'll add here that this includes this difficulty to keep these secrets.
secrets. Violet feels grounded in knowledge and information, and now she's supposed to do exactly what she's angry about that happened to her last year, which is lie and keep this very important information secret for everyone's safety, or at least their short-term safety. She feels so alone, but she's still surrounded by people who love her, and yet suddenly they don't understand or know her whatsoever. They don't know anything about what's important in her life anymore, and she can't be truthful with anyone despite wanting to be and wanting to feel that connection. She just doesn't want to be so alone where she's blocking everyone out when all she wants to do is let them in. I mean, we even get that I feel so lonely in the previous chapter in chapter 19 when she's talking to Rhiannon. Like this girl yeah. is dealing with some PTSD. She has mega anxiety. She has mega like distrust of everyone around her. And her boyfriend basically is telling her don't open up to other people. It's insane the position she is put in. I also want to point out the fact that she desperately wants, quote, the one person who unconditionally loves her, unquote, Mira, to know this huge secret. It is so human. Also, the fact that Mira is the person who unconditionally loves her. This is someone she has not lived with in years. She doesn't even view this as Zayden, let alone her mother. Uh, like, she doesn't even have that kind of trust with her. This is also a reminder that we are dealing with gray characters. I'm not saying morally gray here. I'm saying gray characters. They are not going to be perfect. And that is what makes them realistic and interesting. I'm going to bring it to Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix. If Harry was just like, do, 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 won the Triwizard Tournament, saw Cedric Diggory die, everything's fine, it wouldn't be realistic. He was supposed to be highly unlikable in that book. And that's what I think. He's a 15-year-old boy. She's a 21-year-old girl who's dealt with some shit. They're supposed to be very imperfect. Exactly. And, you know, they are going to make decisions that they objectively shouldn't. But that's part of their journey. If Violet could easily keep all of these secrets, or if, like you were just saying, if she's just essentially fine after everything that happened, us as readers would be like, wait, what the fuck? We would be missing out on so much. So maybe we don't like what she's doing. Maybe we don't agree with some of her decisions, but I can absolutely understand them in terms of her character. And that's what we as readers have to look at. And, and may I just say, among the arguing and can I trust him, can I not, are these sweet little moments of just two people who are in a relationship. She might not call it that, but Violet, you are absolutely in a relationship. And dare I say, in this particular moment, a healthy relationship, they're trying so hard. I love this scene. I love this moment. Zayden cups her cheek after she confesses, like I almost told Mira today. He doesn't say anything. He just has, quote, quiet acceptance in his eyes. And he just lets her open up and keep talking. In the last chapter, I keep calling back to this, but I think it's so important for us to remember. She felt so lonely. And this kind of support, that is that I'm just here to listen, she has been desperately needing this and like needing in italics bold underline and I think that Zayden finally it only took you 20 chapters my guy but he finally notices that that's what she needs in this moment so rather than chastising her he gives her space to talk and he does not say anything and people in relationships this is a good thing to take note of sometimes you just need to listen and not say anything I need to take this note actually that's actually really important in relationships because sometimes when my husband, like when I just really need to just, I'll say, let it all out. My husband asks me a question. Are we in solution mode or do you just need to vent? 
And usually I am in venting mode and then a day or so later I'll be in solution mode. And he can know what kind of approach that is because they're two very, very different approaches to a conversation and it saves a lot of headache. (laughs) That is the golden question of relationships. You're welcome. There's some free advice, everyone. I also want to point out the language of Zayden cupping Violet's face. It comes up several times in this book. I noticed that on my very first reread because we were so hyper-focused on it throughout Fourth Wing when it came to Dane. That's never how it was described when Zayden was touching Violet in that same motion there, you know, like caressing her face or other language, but never cupping her face in fourth wing. I don't care if Dane swears he only saw a flash of Violet's memory when he touched her. I still think he read her memories when he cupped her face throughout fourth wing. We'll definitely speculate on that in a little while here, but that wording of cupping her face was so intentional with who was using it in fourth wing. And now it's like that phrase is now safe to be described with Zayden. I need a moment in the spotlight for this line, quote, what we build together. It's lines like this that make me think of those moments in relationships, like when things start to really get serious and those little comments are made that insinuate, hey, I'm in this for the long haul. I will never forget the moment when Brett mentioned something along the lines of when we live together so offhandedly. And I'm pretty sure that in that moment, I actually jumped on top of him and squealed. Like we both knew that it was going to happen at some point, but we had never said it outright. And it just, it's little lines like that, like what we build together that make Violet feel more secure that, oh, he actually does see this as a long term thing. It just, oh, I love it. I love and hate this moment. It breaks my heart that when Violet asks him a question about how long are you going to hold on to the weapons and he answers it, she's like flabbergasted. She's totally surprised. I love that after she asks the question, quote, a corner of his mouth tugs upward. Like it's showing us that he wants her to ask questions. But that's the end of my love for this because it hurts my heart so much of how she was surprised that the man she loves answered a fucking question honestly to her. It really does show us how in the dark she's been feeling that even when they're cuddling, she asks him a question and she's like, what? You answered? Like, ugh. And it shows how unsure of him and herself she is. She hasn't trusted Zayden to answer a question upfront and honestly, even though he's been telling her to do that. And Violet hasn't trusted herself to just ask the question and risk putting herself out there again. It goes right back to that mutual trust, that push and pull that has to happen between them. I will say, I do love them just like asking each other questions back and forth. Like, like that tell me something real. So much love. Love all of that. Now, on my cuddling high horse for a second, I'm a cuddler. I love being Little Spoon. It's my favorite thing. The fact that they hadn't cuddled since the first night they slept together, not chapter 32, not the night of war games, the first time they slept together. That is wild. So much has happened. And like, I know that's only a few months in, in this stretch of the book, but like so much has happened. Not even a few months. It's been multiple. It's been more than a few months. Yeah, the first time they slept together, it was another month before they did again. So, so much has happened. And even the first time they slept together, he still had like his like leathers on, basically. I think he had his shirt off, but I remember this vividly. <laughs> but, like, I was going to say, they- wow, you really know these scenes well. <laughs> I listen to them repeatedly. But the fact that like they haven't slept, like no wonder they're fighting so much. They need some skin to skin cuddle time. A lot can be fixed by that. But what do you think of this line, Lex? Taking a hard pivot. Quote, the day you can successfully block me out all the way is the day I'm dead. The day we're both dead. Is this 
foreshadowing? Very possibly. This is a little bit terrifying. And, you know, in the moment, I think Zayden's referring to their bond and how strong it is. You know, they're part of each other. Their minds are melded together in a way. So there's no such thing as actually being able to block each other out. But the both dead language, that that is especially ominous to me. I am way more worried about this kind of language right here than I am of recovered correspondence verbiage in the epigraphs. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> same. Big same. I don't like it. I don't like it. One bit. The holiday season is here, and I swear I break out more this time of year than any other with all the rich food, the extra stress, and the wonky weather. And of course, it is also the season for family photos and getting all dressed up for those get-togethers. And while we can't control any other aspects of the holiday season, we can help you feel confident and comfortable in your own skin with our partner for today, Apostrophe. Whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. Apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin. Simply fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and medical history. Then you snap a few selfies and a dermatology provider will create a specialized treatment plan just for you. Look, I always had acne growing up, but for the first time in my adult life, I'm getting back acne actually. And other than just using my face wash to wash my back with, which is not a comfortable feeling, I've been pretty stumped on what to do. So when I saw that they have a back and face option on apostrophe, I got so excited and I'm thrilled to start using my custom treatment plan that targets both my face and my back. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash FF when you use our code FF. That's a savings of $15, folks. This code is only available to our Fantasy Fangirls listeners. To get started, go to apostrophe.com slash FF and click get started. Then use code FF at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you so much, Apostrophe, for sponsoring today's episode. Now let's go to history class with our substitute teacher, Professor Devera, who ooh, starts off class by saying that there has been an attack, and we learn that Mason, who was also at Resin, has died in that attack. Justice for our glasses-wearing writers! I know! Violet speculates that this attack was an opportunity to target and kill Mason, and Violet actually says that out loud. Come on, girl, I know you're tired, but come on. <laughs> I love that this is what causes Reed to finally start putting pieces together. Like, I agree, Violet, you've had better moments, but also like the fact that Reed is now so hyper attuned to her friend, I'm glad that she said it out loud because it's about time. I will argue that Reed's been suspicious since LandNav when Violet said something about what's really out there in the world. Again, kind of like letting things slip when she's really tired. Reed knows Griffins didn't kill Day, oh, yeah. but Wyvern, they are not on her radar with what actually did. So here's my question, though. How did they manage to kill Mason? Because Violet says, quote, there's no logical way an attack would be used to cover up a single death. Right? And this is another ellipses, dot, 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 right? Do you really think that they went this far, that they did this entire attack? Or do you think that in the hustle and bustle, someone took him away and slitty slit his throat or something? I hate that I said that. (laughs) Slitty slit his throat. (laughs) You know, I don't think that the attack was orchestrated to kill Mason, but I do think that they seized the opportunity that was already there. And, you know, in the chaos of the attack, Mason was targeted and killed by someone supposedly on his side with Navarre. Poor Mason. Hard pivot, but Devera should win the Teacher of the Year award at Beskayeth. Honestly, in Navarre. She is 
insanely good. She says how the battle they're discussing has no practical application, which first and foremost, I get very like math or algebra vibes here from Devera, where it's like, this has no practical application, so let's not talk about it. Throwback to our interview with Jennifer L. Armantrout, where we all collectively agreed that we do not need to know algebra. <laughs> we love you, JLA. You're amazing. But so instead of just saying, we're not going to discuss this battle and like throws it out the window, she instead asks them questions about how it would be useful to know this battle. She gives me also hardcore Remus Lupin vibes. Like she feels like the Remus Lupin. I'll say her and Felix feel very much like the Remus Lupin of this world. Yes. This lesson, it just makes me love Devera all the more. It also makes me wonder where she's from and what her backstory is, as they're all talking about the cultures and the things that they've lost. I don't think that she's tierish. I, I just wonder where she's from there. She stops the third wing cadet's retort about Tyrandor not getting the message. Quote, we're not going to do that. It's comments like that that threaten the unity of Navarre, unquote. She's really calling this out as, no, we're not going to call provinces out here. We're not going to single them out here. This is part of the unification here. But she does it in such a educational and non-prejudiced way that I just, I love it so much. We also learn more about this unification of the kingdoms and how in Navarre, individual provinces' cultures were lost. You know, for instance, who is the common language common to in the first place? Unsurprisingly, the answer is Kaldir. It's among one of the th one of the three provinces there that spoke the common language because, hey, guess what? That's where the king resides. So Kaldir is like the capital of Navarre. So absolutely, it makes sense that their language was dubbed the common language. When discussing what else they lost, a Tirish girl mentions their libraries. I just thought this was an interesting callback to the Orisha Library, which is one of two distinct landmarks in the city. And then Rhee brings up that they lost their folklore. I was so nervous first reading this that Rhee would say something about Wyvern because even just the word slipping in Battle Brief, or I suppose it's a history class right now, it could be a death sentence. She brings up a good point about folklore only surviving through oral history, proving that stories are still passed down from generation to generation. Scribes be damned. And yet they do lose more and more each generation. So I'm honestly just surprised that she even knows anything about Wyvern and Venon that we learned about in Fourth Wing there on Presentation Day. It does make sense to me that Rhee and her village specifically has so much folklore about Wyvern. Because she's on a border village, a border of the Poromilian province, I'm assuming that means a lot of during the one year when Navarre said, hey, if you're in Poromil, we have wards now. Come on in. But they only gave them one year before they shut down the borders. I'm assuming that a lot of Poromilians went over to Navarre and probably hoisted up in cities that were on the border region. So it makes sense to me that Rhee and her village would have a lot of that Pormillion type of, well, I mean, I guess, I don't know if it is local to Pormil though, because prior to that, it would have been local to everyone because Venon were everywhere. That is true. I don't have an answer for that. Devera challenges the students to start asking the question, quote, are our sacrifices worth it to keep the citizens of Navarre safe? First and foremost, the fact that she's able to ask this question and not just like immediately get taken away is quite amazing, but she's also priming them for the war to come without them even knowing it. Basically, Devera is the best. I love her. Her and Felix are my Lupin and McGonagall. You get to decide which one's which. Oh, Felix is not Lupin. He's way too harsh to be Lupin. Is he? Would Devera he be like is Lupin. Dumbledore? Felix is McGonagall. Oh, McGonagall. 
I could see Felix being McGonagall. Yeah. I also definitely spelled yeah. McGonagall very wrong in this outline. That's embarrassing. <laughs> anyway. Devera's challenging them and just really planting the seed here. It sent a chill down my spine when the class responds with a yes. Some writers saying it louder than others and Violet notably stays quiet. I just love that little act of rebellion. Violet knows the dangers that are truly out there and everyone else who's saying yes, they think that it's just protective wards. They don't realize that it's full-blown attacks from Venon throughout poor Emil that they're saying no to. Lexi, it is time to move into the sparring scene, which also means it is time to bring it back to God fucking damn it, Dane. Man, I missed this section of the podcast. My heart just swelled so much here. I never knew my heart would swell so much hearing cuss words. <laughs> I'm so excited. Oh, man. I love that. That makes me so happy. It brings me so much joy to know that Violet has just been living her life, dealing with and contemplating literally her world being turned upside down. And Dane has just been like, meh, Violet won't talk to me. Like, it just makes me so happy. I'm so petty that way. Now, there is this moment where Riddick is commenting about how all the teachers, basically most of the leadership in Basgayeth, did run out to the front because there was an attack by three drifts. That's why DeBarrett was subbing. And Riddick says that they run out of here as if the wards have fallen. Dane says, the wards haven't fallen. You know if they had. Does he know this from personal experience of being outside of the wards and feeling that magic change? Or is this just an assumption from Dane? Based on what we know about his character, I'm going to say it's an assumption. He, so. he really does take everything he learns at face value. I wouldn't be surprised if he has gone beyond the wards to an outpost, especially with his dad being, you know, Colonel Atos there. But I don't think that he doesn't know that much himself. He just listens to what he's told and then regurgitates it back and and thinks that it is absolute truth. While we're roasting Dane, I'm going to hop on a high horse and roast him even harder. Dane not taking the hint <laughs> that Violet doesn't want to talk to him is so infuriating and might I say quite disrespectful. I understand that they have been friends for 16 years. That is a long time. But when someone is walking away from you, not once, but twice, saying, this is quote, I'll talk to you when the sight of you doesn't make me want to bury my knife into your chest all the way into the fucking hilt. It's pretty fucking clear they don't want to talk to you. <laughs> then, of course, he goes to teach her and forces her to talk to him on the mat. So yet again, here he is. Dane, let me make this all about me and my wants. God Fucking damn it, Dane. I said this so often during Fourth Wing when Dane has this pattern of being very self-centered and making things all about him. A perfect example is threshing. Violet is having this moment with her two, not one, two new bonded dragons. And he's like, Violet, you did it. I'm going to make out with your face now. And she's like, can I just have a moment with my new dragons, please? I hate him so much still. And I'm so happy to still hate him. Oh my God. I don't know what we're going to do when we get to chapter I miss this so much. Like, I cannot say how much I miss this. This is going to be so hard in part two. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I love when Violet says, though, quote, I thought he, Dane, was going to be my everything. This is calling back to that moment in Fourth Wing when she had not only a big crush on him, but she thought they were going to be the love story here. She thought that was going to be her everything. And wow, does it show how much our girl has grown up. 
Now, when Dane challenges Violet to the mat and Imogen is like freaking the fuck out, so she yeets on out of there to go get Bodhi, I wonder if, because at first I was like, Imogen, why why are you leaving? You are the memory wiping signet. Stay here. What are you doing? (laughs) But then when she grabs Bodhi and brings him back, I wonder, now on a reread, I wonder if she grabbed him, not only because he's kind of like the Zayden of the year, but because he can counter signets. Would he be able to counter Danes on the mat? That is a good question. My guess is no, with a question mark. Or at least it's it, the way that I see it is it would be way harder to counter mind signets for him. I assumed that Imogen went to go get Bodhi because he's a section leader, like you said, and he's one of the few ranking cadets who can potentially help in this situation. And, you know, he's like the Zayden representative who will absolutely definitely go title to Zayden. My guess is that it was more because he's a section leader, not because he can counter signets. But I really do wonder what his ability is when it comes to mind signets. I wonder if he can sense when signets are being used and if he can that would make mind signets a lot easier but also would he wonder when Zayden is intensifying other people would he be like why is there a signet activated right now no one's doing it so what if he knows about Zayden's signet but he's just keeping quiet because it's an intensic this is headcanon now for me (laughs) I never thought of that I I don't my guess is no, but again, probably not. How does he counter those mind signets? So interesting. Oh, I love can, it. Can he counter mind signets, or can he only counter physical signets? Like Car uses fire, and he like sucks it yeah. back in. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, but I love this line quote. Being chosen as wing leader wasn't all nepotism. It is important for us as readers to remember that Dane is good at what he does, and he does have a very powerful signet. But I love this wasn't all nepotism, meaning that at least some of it was quite a bit of nepotism. That's my interpretation, at least. Plus, I do think that leadership, aka God fucking damn it, Dane's dad, thinks that they have him so brainwashed that having him rise through the ranks and being under their control would be very fucking useful. Or maybe, you know, we've explored on the podcast the idea of Dane being venom or somehow being associated with dark wielding. Maybe they have been making Dane into some kind of dark wielder and he doesn't know it yet. I'm really leaning further and further away from that being a possibility. What does that mean in regards to Kath's breath? I have no fucking idea. But I do think that having Dane a very powerful signet, who's also mega brainwashed by leadership, at least for right now, possibly throughout this entire series, but we'll speculate that in chapter 36. Him rising through the ranks, I do think was God fucking damn it, Dane's dad pulling some puppet strings behind the scenes because how convenient it would be to have a wing leader who can choose their position next year who is mega brainwashed by leadership and super under their control yeah basically god fucking damn it dane and god fucking damn it dane's dad i will stand on that hill firmly (laughs) i've been reflecting a lot and i realize why i'm having such a hard time with dane's arc from fourth wing through iron flame his and violet's relationship or previous relationship we should say has always been telling not showing now we talk a lot here about how good Rebecca is at showing not telling but I do think that this is one example of a little too heavy-handed on the tell not show there are so many straightforward reminders that Dane was her best friend for years but we don't ever experience that for ourselves we get the tiniest glimpse here and there in fourth wing and a little bit in part two of iron flame But as a reader, we don't ever see Dane as her oldest, bestest friend, which is understandable because of when we, the readers, enter the story. But there's so much reliance on having to tell us that they were close when we don't ever really 
feel it ourselves. And so I do, I wish that we got more glimpses into the friendship that they used to have, specifically in Fourth Wing, to set this all up in Iron Flame a little bit better because. We just keep seeing that, oh, he was my best friend. Oh, you know, re-saying, but he was your closest friend. And it's just like, it's kind of just falling flat a little bit for me because it's like, okay, we get it. They were good friends, but we don't ever feel or experience that ourselves. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we are so hung up on hating Dane and having a hard time with his redemption arc because we don't ever feel what he was previously. So I I finally had that realization there. I am not a flashback person. I actually think I actively wildly dislike flashbacks in books. This is, I think, a major exception. I agree with you completely. I would have loved some kind of flashback or even like a dream sequence of them being little and seeing that experience. Or, I mean, even just like at the beginning of the book, I know that Dane you know, he storms over to her. He's immediately on the get you in the scribes, get yes. you in the scribes, which it makes sense yes. in why he is like that. But again, to your point here, we don't get any of that warm and fuzzy feelings. So I do wonder, though, if that part, if part two of Iron Flame is supposed to be that for us. But it just it feels like too little too late to me, at least, because we're already all on the we hate Dane train. And I don't know if I even necessarily need flashbacks or a dream sequence there because, oh, my gosh, if there was a dream sequence about her and Dane, the Internet would just go absolutely bonkers. But I do think that more anecdotes. There is like one here or there, and but it's just so small. It's just like a line or two about, oh, yeah, we used to play in this tree. And it's like, no, I need more concrete anecdotes through sprinkled throughout Fourth Wing to really set up their relationship better. I will say this. I am so hate Dane train right now. I'm very loud about God fucking damn it, Dane. I will say this. In my rereads, when we get to chapter 36 and beyond, every single time my heart softens and I'm like, fuck, do I actually like Dane? So I do want to prime people that I'm going to make a hard pivot for my guy Dane in chapter 36, but we are not there yet. I am still on hate Dane train. I would probably still speculate that he's undercover in some way, but I do think it is a compelling redemption arc But all these little nuances here and there in this book as we're doing this deep dive, I don't know. I am so conflicted when it comes to Dane. We'll explore more of that in a moment. Well, actually, no, we'll explore more of that right now. In true God fucking damn it, Dane fashion, it is time to speculate some things. Lexi, take it away. First and foremost, how did Dane not know what Violet is talking about? In my annotations, all I have is duh written about Dane's like, oh, is that what Ryerson meant when he said Athbane? Like, how did he not put two and two together? I don't think that he's acting in this moment, but he's being extremely naive. Like, I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for here, but man, he is not putting the puzzle pieces together in a way that any wing leader or person of intelligence should. (laughs) Wasn't all nepotism is all I'm going to say there. Now, we do have to ask the question, though. Is he telling the truth? Oh, isn't that one of the big questions here? Is he telling the truth? He says he saw a flash of a memory when, quote, Ryerson told you he'd gone to Athbeen with his cousin. He then goes on to say, second years don't get clearance to go to Athbeen. So he's actually referring to the fact that Bodhi was kind of the tick off that, oh, why are they all going to Athbeen? Did he just tell his father about Athbeen, though, because he was jealous of Zayden and wanted to, like, knock him down? On a peg? Well, he's, he's acting like it's because he was just confused. And again, it's that naive approach there. Like I said a few moments ago, while I don't think Dane's putting on some big acting performance here, 
I also just can't fully believe him. He says he saw a flash of a memory when he touched Violet. And while he doesn't say it was an accident, he's denying that he stole her memory. Like this flash of a memory was an accident. Now, again, that's me putting some words in his mouth. So this is all just basing off of context from this part and other interactions too. At the very least, Dane accidentally learned something about Athbane when he was trying to get maybe some other information about Zayden. But again, he is so hurt that Violet would think he'd use Use his power on her, which makes me think he's describing the incident as something of an accident. But then, in the famous chapter 35, Dane says, quote, I only searched your memory to prove my father wrong, Violet, and all you did was prove him right. Unquote. Remember back when he stole this memory? He had just been with the king, his dad, Melgren, and Lilith. And at the time, we speculated, they told him to go to Violet and get the memory-stealing information. And I'm leaning towards this was definitely the case. But in this moment here now on the mat, Dane is acting so innocent. So with all this to say, I think he does believe he acted innocently, but the fact he doesn't recognize what he did was stealing her memory makes me think again that he was doing it all book. He calls it touching you and it was a flash of a memory. So I'm sticking to our fourth wing saga of God fucking damn it, Dane. And the whole while he never thought of it as stealing memories, but just touching her. So here's one thing I will say in chapter 49 of Iron Flame. This is when him and Violet are working on the journal. He says, quote, I did it by accident the first time. I was just so used to touching you and you'd gotten close to Ryerson and my father had pretty much bragged about the way your mother cut into him. I knew he had to be after revenge, but you wouldn't but you wouldn't listen to me. The first time. He says, I did it by accident the first time. That means literally earlier in this book, we get another instance of Violet calling out first. She says the first six created the first Wardstone. That means there's a second one. We get the same instance here with Dane. The first time. That means that there were multiple, whether it's two or more. But it's also after her and Ryerson got close. So it would have to be well after the mating bond and they were maybe starting, he was starting to train her or after the bat. Like this was after they had, I'll call it an established relationship of some sorts. Is he referring to the first time being on reunification day or was it before that? That was, I remember very clearly. That was yeah. the last time he touches her. That was our last God fucking damn it day action yes. when he touched her at Unification Day. So if there were multiple times, then there were, there were times before the Unification memory. But it Unif- would have to have been after threshing. This is exciting. Because it's after he and her got close. Yes. Well, he cups her face at threshing. I do remember that. And then he continues to cup her face like while she's training training with Imogen. She's on her way to that. Like there are multiple times between threshing and reunification day where he does cup her face. I'm assuming that each of those times he did read her memories. Maybe it was on accident the first time, but he does cup her face multiple times before. that. So maybe the accidental time was before threshing. But then after that, it was more purposeful. And uh, and it brings me back to him not thinking of it as stealing her memories. It's it's just something that happened and from like he's like not like trying to be manipulative, but he obviously still is. And I thought this is why I have so many feelings about his redemption arc. And I think that's honestly part of the point here, right? Dane is one very complicated Hufflepuff who we can hate or now after chapter thirty five feel 
confused by at face value. But in reality, he's the manipulated son of an evil colonel who doesn't even realize he's doing bad things. He's the ultimate playing the victim character who isn't even aware that he's on a redemption arc. Like he's like, wait, what? I've been good this whole time. Like that's Dane. He doesn't know that he's on a redemption arc here. Perfectly said. Oh my God. Violet thinks to herself that Re is going to figure this out and it's only a matter of time. And I believe that she's absolutely right. There is too much venom activity. There's too much going on recently to keep this secret hidden from someone as observant as Rhiannon. Readers can give Violet a hard time for eventually sharing her secret. We've already talked about that this episode, but they specifically re already suspect something weird is going on. It's not so much that there are secrets that she's questioning. It's just what are the secrets specifically? So Arik comes over to Re and Violet and he's like, I broke my wrist. Did he break it on purpose or do you like and just like use this as an opportunity to finally talk to Violet alone? Or do you think it just happened? I think he was in the right place at the right time. I definitely think he's been waiting for such an opportunity to speak with Violet about this. And this was the moment to seize and it lined up perfectly with her talking to Re and whatnot there. So I don't think that there was any scheme about breaking his wrist to go talk to Violet. But I do think that it was a great opportunity that he seized on in the moment. Agreed completely. Which, let's talk about it. Enter the moment where Arik got even more interesting. Arik had just so many, he was an onion. He had so many layers to him and I did not. I like to think of him more as a cake because he is delicious. He is delicious. I can't wait for more Arik. Oh my God, I love him. I don't know about you, Lexi, but I did not. I didn't see it coming that he was a prince. I did not see it coming that he knew about the outside war. But this is one of my favorite surprises in the book. And honestly, just based off of this move alone, I want him so badly to be our king by the end of the series. We're going to get more into that when we do the archives heist and all those like little tidbits of foreshadowing drop and all that kind of stuff. But I can't wait to learn more about the royal family. I want to go to Caldeer. Oh my gosh, me too. You know, this is like subplot M in our story because there are just so many other priorities. But I guarantee this is just a setup for Arik's part to the greater story here. Arik, the king, royalty, it's all going to play a bigger role in the future. And you know, I was actually a little bit surprised at some of the Arik hate in the comments that we got on a meme about him that we posted to social media like last week or something. Yeah. <laughs> really? All I have to say about his small role in Iron Flame is that we readers, we need to have patience. We're not going to get all the answers and character arcs in one book. That's just part of the fun of this journey here. So we only got like the introduction of Arik. And yes, it's a side plot, but it is, it's just setting it all up for bigger and better things for him later on in the series. There is also some confusion about how Arik knows that Violet knows about the Venom and how he knows about the Venom in the first place and what is the point of him being in the writer's quadrant. So I think that while Arik wasn't at graduation when Zayden and Violet explained what happened at War Games, he does indeed know the story of what happened at War Games and he immediately read between the lines and recognized the truth. There's plenty of people to share a version of what happened. And how does he know what happened at War Games? Well, there's plenty of people to share a version of whatever happened, but there are some question marks around it. Like, a griffin brought day down what that he would recognize exactly for what it is plus the reports around there all about the burning at resin which was to hide all the dead wyvern like he was just waiting for his opportunity to talk to violet about this because they both know and are on the same side it's so notable too that arx guards started carrying the alloy hilted daggers it means that the king knows danger is coming and they are arming their guards with weapons to stop the venom that was so notable there it's also good to know that 
remember that in Battle Brief, they explain that all of the correspondence from, you know, the outpost and all that kind of stuff, it goes to Bezgaith and then it goes to Kaldir. So remember that they're getting briefed in Kaldir on everything. And I bet you anything, it is not as highly redacted as it is in Bezgaith. So it's not out of the question that Arik would be able to, using his princely sway, get his hands on a lot of these probably highly classified reports. So it's not out of the question that he would know as much and then, of course, start putting pieces together. Well, and then we also have to remember his brother, who is in line to become king, but he has chosen, I'll say, the Navarian way of, nope, we're going to stay within our borders here and not do anything. So here's my question. Who do you think is going to kill the older brother because Arik, I'm I am convinced Arik is gonna end up king. So who's gonna kill older bro? Oh, you know what? Let's just say Mira. Zayden's already gotten one of the king's sons. Let, let's just throw out Mira there. <laughs> Whoa. I'm voting Arik. I'm voting for some sibling kinslaying is what I'm voting for. Wow. Oh man. I love you, I, Lexi. I, just, I love you, older sister. <laughs> Gotta be careful here. Jeez, these younger siblings are crazy. (laughs) Love Arik when he's like, why else would I be here? I just got shivers down my spine when I read that. He wants to do something about this. And the only thing he feels like he can do is go and become a dragon rider. He has no interest in the throne and he's got the fighting skills. So why the hell not? Why not go become an elite dragon rider? Which also ties into that reluctant leader. I will definitely place a bet that he will eventually become king. Even as a dragon rider, we get a lot of foreshadowing later in the book and it's like hello Jon Snow oh don't get me started on Jon Snow's character arc, I swear <laughs> to God I'm so pissed still alrighty friends it is time to talk about the dream now last week I was a little mean and I shared a highly redacted screenshot of a text conversation between Lexi and I about who I think the sage is in these Venom dreams. Hold up. I seriously thought about sharing the unredacted version so that people would like me more than you, but I decided not to. <laughs> I love you so much. That is such a that's such a you move. That's so funny. Oh my God. I appreciate that. Thank you. Because here we are. It is finally time to talk about it. Actually, wait, not yet. Because actually, I have one moment of a huge... Just maestro brava to Rebecca Yaros. Adding these scenes in this story is such a fun mystery for us readers to figure out. Not only as they're dribbled throughout the book, but also as the Zayden parallel at the end with his dream slash flashback. Like, I just, I love moments like this. So I just wanted to say a quick brava to Rebecca Yaros. Now it's time to talk about it. There are so many ideas as to who this sage is. Some think it might be Naolin. Some think it might be someone who we We've just never met yet, and it's just like meant to be this bad guy. Some think it's Satan. And I'm not as like intrinsic level in this camp. I am, however, on a slight lean, but not convinced. But let me tell you why I'm even in the slight lean moment. I'm going to go point by point throughout each of the dreams here. Number one, quote, I'm yanked off my feet by an unforeseen force and lifted into the air, completely immobilized. We know that this is a way to make Venons not be able to channel from the ground. But Zayden is also always described throughout this book as the center of her gravity, the thing that's pulling her to earth when a lot of things are flipping it upside down like 
venom, yanking her into the air, literally taking her gravity away. This is more of just a connection between the two. It would make sense that evil Zayden or venom Zayden would be the thing that takes away her gravity while human Zayden brings her down. Then, quote, shadows mark the gaunt hollows of his cheekbones on a eerily youthful face. Shadows, eerily youthful that might be nothing, but I just wanted to point it out. Also, the Venom says, quote, you'll never escape me. He has multiple moments of words like this throughout each of the dream sequences, but this one might be a bit of a stretch, but it does remind me of the, quote, there's nowhere in existence you would go that I wouldn't be able to find you, violence. Another one later, quote, you'll never be free of me. I'll hunt you to the ends of the continent and beyond. Stuff like that, just those little parallels there. Then the Venom says, death it is then, quote, but he looks so dot, 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 disappointed as he lowers his hand. Again, the use of those ellipses, that dot, 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 we're supposed to zero in on that word disappointed. Now, this could be the Venon just playing mind games, but it also could be a Venon Zayden trying to get her to join him and is disappointed. This one is a stretch. It's giving me pause, but the dot, dot, dot is the thing that made my ears perk up. Later, however, in chapter 37, we get another holding me immobile, frozen off the ground, aka taking away her gravity, and of course, the you'll never be free of me comment. Now, I'm not going to lie. If I was listening to me up until this point, I'd be like, okay, Nicole, this is a stretch. But... This is where it gets interesting. In chapter 52, this is what really turned me to the idea. She is again suspended, her gravity being taken away in each of these three dreams. I don't think that's on accident. But then we get, quote, he drags a single long fingernail down my throat, exposing an expanse of tan arm beneath his robes. And I twitch, fear accelerating my heartbeat. Tan arm, Zayden's skin is described as tawny, which is also another word for deeply tanned. Then, quote, I smell a hint of something sweet on his breath. I did a search for the word sweet in both Fourth Wing and Iron Flame. And other than the revolution taste oddly dot 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 sweet, which I don't think it's an accident that these two words are the same, by the way, Zayden is directly connected with a lot of the mentions of the word sweet. In Fourth Wing, Violet says it's sweet and he says don't think of me as soft or kind her talking to Imogen in this book she says really I think it's sweet when she's describing the letters and Zayden again multiple times those are just two I wanted to call out but what would this mean because if Zayden is the venom in her dreams it does give some questions first and foremost in chapter 56 of this book she believes firmly that she sees the sage in the air when they think that they're about to face off right after Violet put up the semi wards was that actually the sage that she saw was it someone else? Is this some kind of future Zayden? Time manipulation is not out of the question in this world. In Zayden's dream, he's talking to who he thinks is the sage, but it turns out to be a general, aka a maven. Is this the same Venon, or does this maven somehow become Zayden's teacher, who then he is becoming a sage? I don't know. Is this Venon sage in Violet's dream just connected to Zayden? Is this all just a coincidence? Am I still trying to figure out my thoughts on this? Yes, obviously. You can tell by the five-minute tangent I've just gone on. But in an interview, this is the thing that does make me lean away from Zayden being the Venon. In an interview, someone asked Rebecca Yaros that it basically is Violet's dad Venon. And she says, no. She says, quote, you don't think she'd be able to recognize her own dad. If she would be able to recognize her own dad, she would obviously be able to recognize Zayden too. However, there were just way too many parallels for me to not pull this out. There you go. There's the non-highly redacted version 
of my thoughts on this sage and venom dream. I love those crazy theories. Now, real quickly, while we're on the topic of Violet's dad and Venon, Rebecca has confirmed in an interview that Violet's dad is dead. So RIP to all of those theories. I'm sticking with my original thought that leadership killed Violet's dad because of what he knew. And now I specifically think it was Atos and slash War Markham. But Violet's dad is not a Venon. He is definitely dead. And I think the big mystery is going to be how and why he died. I agree completely. 100%. Now, Zayden equals Venon aside. I want to talk about this Venon sage. He says, quote, I've waited centuries for someone with your power. Again, maybe something that leans away from that Zayden equals Venon centuries. But I've waited centuries for someone with your power really stood out to me. It, you know, it makes me wonder if the last lightning wielder was over a century ago, that means they can't just be looking for a lightning wielder because that person did exist just one century ago. It goes to show how much more power Violet has beyond quote unquote just lightning wielding. Someone with of her power for centuries. That's not just lightning wielding. That's so much more. I can't wait to get into it for her. I will say someone on TikTok also pointed out that connection between I've waited centuries for someone with your power and and Darna saying I've waited centuries for you and it's like oh that is all connected we know it it is all connected folks I'm freaking out I'm freaking out (laughs) but if this venom is centuries old then could this venom instead of being Zayden, instead of being Naolin, instead of being whoever, could it be General Daramore? We talked about this in the last episode. General Daramore was described as the first Six's major enemy. But also, I did a search for General Daramore in the book. And in chapter two, when Violet's looking at the big Eurasian map, it says, quote, the region of the Barrens, the dry desert covered peninsula in the southeast that all dragonkind abandoned after General Daramore ruined the land during the Great War is completely painted in crimson, meaning Venon are fucking everywhere around it. We assumed in last episode that General Daramore would mean that he'd be a Venon general, aka a maven. But maybe just like Zayden mistook the Venon sage that he faced off with at the end of the book for a sage and instead is a general, maybe Violet does the same thing. Maybe this guy is a general and maybe he's General Daramore. So on the General Daramore, absolutely. He ruined the land during during the Great War. I think that is literally saying he was a venom and he ruined the land by sucking all of the magic up out of it. Yes. So so all of this about the venom and the dream and who the venom is, I am in the camp that we do not know the specific venom who I don't remember what chapter it is, but we do get confirmation that he is the sage from Resin. Now, if we didn't have that confirmation, I would 100% think that the sage is Naolin. I love and for obvious reasons also hate the idea that it's Zayden. Man, our DMs went absolutely bonkers when Nicole shared that redacted version. We did say for a lot of reasons why it cannot be Zayden. So I am leaning further and further away towards the idea that it would be Zayden. So don't come at me, please. I'm sorry. And in this too, I don't think that it can be Zayden because this sage was at Resin and obviously Zayden was also at Resin. Now, of course, there are time manipulation possibilities like Nicole mentioned, but that is a whole other theory rabbit hole here. It would seem so fitting that this unnamed Venon, who we keep seeing pop up, turns out to be Naolin, who we're supposed to think is dead. However, I stick to my guns that Taryn would recognize Naolin in the battle, especially with Rebecca's comment now that Violet would recognize her dad, even if he's a Venon. Taryn was so close, was bonded to Naolin, he would absolutely recognize him, maybe even sense him, even if he is a Venon. 
do I think that the sage venom in Violet's dreams is working for someone even more powerful like the general or the ancient king that we've heard about? Absolutely, 100%. But I do think that this Rustin sage is something like an introduction to the big bad venom that we will eventually meet. I cannot wait for more of this shit. This I love this so much. As we're moving away from the dream, we have a major alarm, alarm, alarm moment. On their way to the forge, Violet says to Zayden, quote, I need a firsthand account from one of the six. My father talked about seeing one once, so I know they exist. Question is if they have been translated and redacted into uselessness. Papa Sorengale's knowledge and how he holds over this story is going to be the death of me. I swear to God. Which one did he see? Did he see Lara? Did he see Warwick? Did he see someone else's? Is there another one of the sixes that we don't know? Is this the seventh? Is this the seventh dragon rider who might be related to Pop and Sorgale? I need your research. I'm freaking out. So on that note, I actually don't think there is a seventh dragon rider. I love the idea that it's the first six and one combined. That's a whole other subject. But where is your research, Papa Sorengale? I need to know this. I'm wondering if it's in a study and completely untouched still like how Violet's old room was. Of course, in this world, you burn the deceased person's belongings. But I feel like in this situation, the burning of someone's personal belongings really does apply to their daily life belongings, for lack of a better word. Like, you know, clothes, random notes, his toothbrush, but not his research. I don't think Mama Sorengale would let his research burn. And I wonder if she's making sure it's protected too. Which again, I have to ask, why isn't Violet searching for it. You know, I asked that question, but I think I know the answer. She is so focused on the wards. She has tunnel vision to find out how to raise the wards because the clock is ticking, folks, until the Venon show up. And her dad's research, it was on feather tails. No one except book talk thinks there's a connection to that. So... <laughs> Well, Lexi, speaking of book talk, I don't know about you, but I see so many recommendations on book talk that I just get so overwhelmed. So book of the month actually cuts through the clutter and makes it so much easier to choose a book with five to seven carefully selected new editions every single month, saving you from book overwhelm. And because they know readers lead busy lives with full hands, hello children, Book of the Month now offers audiobook options with your membership. So every month you choose a physical or audiobook from their list of featured books. I personally, I just ordered Divine Rivals by Rebecca Ross and I am so excited to see what this popular book is all about. So if you're looking for your next book, go to our link in the show notes or bookofthemonth.com and use code SWEATER S-W-E-A-T-E-R to get your first book for only five Moving away from Papa Sorengale and his infuriating research, we move into RSC. So RSC is the super sneaky secret class, and yet Professor Grady is just walking around the college with his arms linked through Riddick, who has his hands tied behind his back, followed by two henchmen with two more cadets with their hands tied there behind their back. How do people not suspect that some form of this class exists when they're just doing this out in the open? My only answer is... It's best guy. <laughs> it's not good enough for me. So last book, it was very notable every time that Dane stepped in front of Violet while Zayden always stepped to the side or sometimes even behind Violet. This was a way to symbolize that Dane was always feeling like he needed to fight her battles for her and be her saving whatever versus Zayden who trusted her to be strong enough to fight her own battles. And yet my guy Zayden 
my shadow daddy, the man who steals my heart. He's doing a lot of stepping in front of Violet this book. Quote, Zayden sweeps me to the side, putting me behind his back. I'm going to start watching out for this more and more throughout this book, but Zayden, woof. Yeah, he's extremely protective in this book, especially in the first part of part two. And, you know, little moments like this really illustrate it. I will say I am going to have words with Zayden when we get to Count Takaris' house later on in part two. We're Varish's shields down because Zayden says in his mind-to-mind speak with Violet, quote, he'll use the opportunity to kill you for the embarrassment Taren put him and Solas through. To which Violet says, you can't possibly know that. And Zayden responds with, his intentions are pretty fucking clear. Trust me. Intentions is not an accidental word here, friends. It is used to tell us that he is, on a reread at least, that he is reading the intentions using his intrinsic powers. But Varish, he seems like the kind of person who would have rock hard shields in place unless uh, like being a venom affects that i don't know but then if he is a venom wouldn't they know because he's reading his mind and like i'm leaning more and more towards varish's venom but ah you know i wondered this exact same thing zayden is obviously reading his intentions but we also know he can't use this second signet when shields are in place based off of what we learned from the meeting with general melgren in part two so we have to ask is this other major whose shields were down at that time who we kind of made fun of for their shields being down what if she was a venom and venom don't have the same ability with their shields i just don't know how there could be a serum though to keep varish the venom under control but still enable him to keep using his signet but still block out some of his power that is a very complicated mixture there it's got some conflicting side effects i'll say that i guess anything is possible but when violet is on the serum in the interrogation room in chapter 35 and 36 and dane comes in she's like my shields won't even be a thing because and dane will just be able to read my memories but that's also because her shields come from the power that she channels from her dragons there's an inconsistency here with you would absolutely think that varish would have his shields up and zayden is still able to read up now it could just be varish has his shields down in this moment but he knows that violet has way stronger shields because he's been trying to read her this whole time and learn what her weakness is and he isn't able to tap into it and he's like oh someone's obviously been teaching you he would absolutely have his shields up around zayden or maybe he's just that cocky i don't know now can zayden and varish and dane use their mind signets when their own shields are up We've wondered about this with Zayden and how that works with his shields because it's almost like, you know, like with Violet, how she has bricks in place and it's kind of like she just has like a tiny little opening. That's kind of how I perceive it for Zayden and probably for the others too. So maybe Varish has his shields down a little bit so that he can use, try to use the full, that's what it is. I bet he's trying to use the full force of his power to use it on Zayden and Violet in this moment, even, but their shields are in place. And in doing so, he's letting his own shields down in order to come through there. And Zayden's taking advantage of that. That's what I bet's going on. But if Zayden is using his intrinsic abilities, meaning his shields are down, meaning that Varish could read Zayden's worst nightmare, wouldn't 
one of Zayden's worst nightmares be people finding out he's an intrinsic? I think his weakness is more violet. And maybe he can see that that is his weakness. But I really do think that Zayden's shields are always in place. I don't think that he's slipping up here. Now, Rebecca did say that the reason she chose the two POV chapters to do at the end of the special edition of Fourth Wing is because Zayden's shields oh. would naturally be in place, which means he wouldn't be able to use his signet. I'm so hmm. fucking confused. When we finish up part one when we do I believe chapters 34 through 36 the archives is going to be about mind signet powers so we will absolutely explore that and try to figure that out at that time Perfect. I can't believe I just tasked myself with trying to figure that out but I will do my best <laughs> I do not envy you for that battle briefs are looking really easy right about now let's talk about Professor Grady I always need to be here to defend my guy I can't help but notice all of the descriptions around Professor Grady are supposed to make us, if not like him, definitely not hate him. Words like genuine, concern on his face, admiration in his voice. These are all words used around Professor Grady. When they escape later in this chapter, I joked about it in Battle Brief, he's basically sitting in a lawn chair outside of the door of the cave with pom-poms being like, you did it. He's like, well, this was an unexpected delight. Like, I just love Professor Grady. I will defend my guy. Yes, he teaches a terrible class, but I love love him so much. I totally thought of you when I was reading this part when they're just starting the interrogation assessment because I was like, yep, this makes me like Grady for all the reasons that you just pointed out. I'm still putting him in the neutral professor territory like we talked about last episode, but I really do think that he's a good guy, at least as far as good guys can go here at Biscayeth. While most of us can't relate to this exact scenario, at least I hope so, I feel like a lot of us can relate to what Professor Grady says about how every writer who graduates has sat where our seconds squad is sitting and they've survived what they're about to experience. You know, this really actually reminded me of something that a lot of us go through, which is childbirth. The only thing that got me through the terror that is preparing to give birth is that every single woman who has ever given birth in the history of this world has also been through it. And it makes you feel a little bit better that no matter what kind of shit you're about to go through, you'll at least get through it. I have not <laughs> given birth, but I will say that hearing you say that Whenever I do end up doing, that does make me feel a little bit better. I'm still terrified, though. Don't do what I did and start going down mortality rates throughout the ages at like midnight when you can't sleep. Don't do that. <laughs> Why would you do that, you crazy woman? Why would you do that? Hormones. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's terrible. I dis dislike button. Unfollow. Unsubscribe from that line of thinking. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna. This is gonna be the shortest section because I've talked about this endlessly on the podcast. The fact that they were about to eat, not even about, they eat the stuff, they eat the biscuits and the jam, but they were about to drink the apple juice smelling liquid is unforgivable. That's it. That's the tweet. If they didn't have Violet, they'd be fucked. But now I'm going to come in and defend it. But they did recognize it, or at least Violet did. So they are safe. They learned their lesson from Bland Nav. There we go. But, but they still ate the biscuits. Those eye dots. I swear. Oh my <laughs> God. I swear to God. All right. Let's move on to their secrets. So I love this part. I love where they all have to share a little secret. Sawyer's secret is that he did not tell his parents that he didn't bond and had to repeat his first year. And this just breaks my heart. I love Sawyer so much. I am so worried. Maybe worried for him is not the right word. I'm concerned as to where his 
arc is going to be going in book three and beyond? You know, the way I see it is he had his injury. He's safe for at least a while now. No one is That's safe. That's usually how world. it works. If you have an injury, then you're at least safe for the next book. I don't know about that line of thinking. I'm going through every fantasy book I've ever read ever. I wonder if him and Jacinia are going to like end up together and he's helping her also write this book at the same time. That would make me so happy. Oh, I love that. Riddick's secret, however, is so Riddick. I too, Riddick, scream like a toddler when I see snakes. In fact, actually, one time I was on a run with Brett. We were running on the sidewalk. He was on the side of the sidewalk that was closest to the road, and I'm closest to the grass. And I see a snake, and I push Brett into the street (laughs) so that I could get away from the snake. And luckily, he still married me after that. So good times. You know, all I can think of is Indiana Jones and our dad. Our dad is also terrified of snakes, but he says it's okay because it makes him badass like Indiana Jones. And that is totally Riddick's approach too. You know, our dad's hero is also Peter Pan because he never grows up. And that is very much our dad. And it's also very Riddick. (laughs) Shouts to you, dad. God, I hope you're not listening to this episode given where we're going. (laughs) I'm also shocked that the walls weren't like secret windows or they weren't somehow at least like the best guy version of Mike'd. Every interrogation movie or show or I think about, you know, like Stranger Things, especially here, I've ever seen have had these two things in place. They've had like a double wall where the people on the out, like the people in the lab coats can like see and experience what they're going through, but they also have mics. And the fact that they're just like in here sharing secrets after they were literally like, ooh, this apple juice is an apple juice. It's just be smarter, even though it wasn't. But still, I like, (laughs) I would be so not okay with RSC. I would be like, so hyper, hyper aware of everything. What a diss it would be to hear that you got selected to be one of the interrogators. And here's what I mean by that. This is from the book. They are unremarkable in height, looks, and even hair. Quote, it's as if being unmemorable is necessary to the job. You know, we kind of already knew this, but imagine just how much your signet dictates the rest of your life. It's something you have no control over, and it's going to be so central to your identity. And I do think that as soon as you're identified as having a mind signet, you are most likely going to be off to the interrogation. It's so true. I do have to point out how these interrogators are the devil reincarnate. I cannot even begin to imagine what our squad here is going through. The fact that this is fake and they're still getting the absolute shit kicked out of them like to be sitting in a chair and having two people tell me the most horrible things I feel about myself and all the while getting the absolute shit kicked out of me watching my friends getting beaten but if I crack I die like this is horrific no wonder there's a content warning at the top of this book because I remember reading this for the first time and I'm like this is not the graded scenario this is like easy mode I need to emphasize again that Varish was pulled from active duty because his prisoners kept dying under his interrogation and the solution here is to send him to be an interrogator in interrogation class where cadets just die under him instead. He is an impatient fuck who does whatever it takes to try and break someone and it just, it goes to show how little life is valued as a cadet. Griffin Ryder prisoners are saved from his evilness but not Navarre cadets? Like, is this just another terrible oversight by Colonel Atos or is this not an accident or oversight at all? That is a really good fucking point there, Lex. Wow. Ouch. It is now time for the second time on this podcast. After weeks of being off, we have God fucking damn it, Dane. 
the way my jaw hit the floor when Dane came in, and by the way, this is God fucking damn it, Dane, with a major question mark on the end of it, if you didn't hear it from my tonality. I actually think I threw my book down and quietly screamed because it was like four in the morning. God fucking damn it, Dane. I was so afraid for our crew when this happened. He's advocating for her like Ryerson said a wing leader should. It's like, ooh, ouch. Like just had to bring Zayden into that. And that is absolutely not what he's doing here or what he's supposed to be doing here. Now I'm going to do something that I don't love. And I'm going to cut Dane the smallest amount of slack here. He does take a moment to advocate for Violet like a fucking wing leader should. Now, I will say this. I mean, a wing leader shouldn't have to because it's against regulation, or at least they should be healthy when they go into interrogation. But I do also wonder that would Dane have advocated for her if Riddick wasn't like he's advocating for her like a wing leader should or whatever? Did he need to be prompted? Is this just another way that he's letting everyone be the puppet masters around him? Like this is, it, it happens twice in this scene where Violet says no, and then he's like, oh, knows an option and he like walks out same here when he's like he's advocating for Violet like a wing leader should he then finally advocates for Violet it just seems like Dane always needs to be like told where to look and then he follows it It just shows how brainwashed he is so there there's my cutting Dane slack I'm back to hating Dane now I was gonna say I can't believe you're defending Dane here I'm gonna do a lot of it in this book and book two I know this is gonna get hard we're you know we were just talking about maybe having a mimosa recording I think whenever we have to defend Dane we should have to take a drink just to ease our (laughs) suffering We get confirmation that Varish's real target is Zayden. Violet is the bait to him, not his ultimate goal. And it's also important to note here that Violet is able to block Zayden out easier when they're not face-to-face. Is this because he's not able to use his second signet when they're at a distance? I think that he can only use his second signet when he's at least facing the person. And so when they're apart, that's another reason, you know, obviously the bond is not as strong because of the distance. We all know that. But he also cannot use the second signet to infiltrate her mind and, and have that stronger connection there. He says, you can always feel me. Like whenever the day that you will not be able to block me out anymore is the day I'm dead, the day we're oh, both yeah. dead. So I do wonder if he's able to like still feel her emotions, kind of like Taryn and Segale. I have no idea. God, I just need to know how these mind signets work. It's really irking my nurkin. This moment, however, really makes me think that this is one of the biggest reasons that Varish was moved to Best Gaieth because God fucking damn it, Dane's dad wanted Varish to become God fucking damn it, Dane's teacher. And also, so I think that God fucking damn it, Dane could be even more under Atos's control. So I do think that Varish was a big puppet move from Atos for sure. So I want to dissect a line from Varish that gave me major question marks around it. Quote, then who are you going to practice on to extend your ability past recent events? We're running out of civilians around here for Nolan to mend. What does this mean? You sent me this text message and the way my jaw fucking dropped. I was like, what the fuck are they doing to civilians? The thing that made me pull this in also is earlier in chapter 22 when they're gathering up the cadets and someone is like, her wing leader's not here to advocate for her that she's, you know, wounded. Varish says, quote, her wing leader is otherwise engaged. Is this such a regular occurrence that Dane is using his signet on civilians that he's just out here doing this practicing on Saturdays? Yeah, I think so. So I asked our Discord community about this line because, 
oh my gosh, like I needed the answer. It's such a big question mark. And the main consensus from our community is that Dane is indeed practicing his signet on civilians to extend his power beyond recent memories. And it's damaging their brains when he pushes too far back. And that's why Nolan has to come in and mend their brains, essentially. And this damage could also occur if he's just doing it multiple times to the same people. The brain, you know, it can only handle so much signet practice. (laughs) And, you know, we have to wonder... Why is this happening to civilians and how or if they're being targeted? Are they just signing up for a clinical trial? (laughs) Like, it's possible. Are they civilians who know things that they shouldn't and they're essentially being interrogated here? Are they from villages being raided and since there's already so many casualties, it won't go noticed if some of these civilians go missing for these mind signet experiments? Were these civilians harboring poor meal refugees? You know, that actually, it doesn't really align with Varish's phrase about running out of civilians. He probably used the word prisoners or traitors. But for how much Dane is all about the Codex, why would he be experimenting on innocent civilians, especially knowing the impact that he's having on them? That right there is why I think that the civilians are not necessarily deemed innocent. Dane could be manipulated into what he thinks is the right thing against traitors, but really, of course, they are actually innocent civilians. I don't know, but that line really threw me for a loop. I think that there is so much more going on with Nolan and all these experiments and and what's going on with the Venom, and we are going to learn a lot more about it, specifically in book three, that conversations like this are going to suddenly have a lot new meaning to them. Well, something I'm confused about then is what if they're, you know, what if this is like a city that got raided by poor Emilian civilians? What if they accidentally picked up someone who was a part of a venom attack or like, or something like, like that feels like they're dancing on the fine line with Dane figuring out some shit that they're doing outside of the borders. Well, and then at one point, Varish does say, I'll explain whatever it is that you see. Like they're essentially prepping him for learning the truth. They they know that he's going to have to learn the truth at some point, but they're brainwashing him to be on their side, of course. I can't believe I'm about to say these words. Dane is kind of a tragic character in this book. Like the fact that he is being led to believe all these different things. I've got complicated feelings about Dane. I know. Don't we all? Varish is absolutely using his signet of detecting weakness right here on Dane with his manipulation tactics. I think that this absolutely alludes to Dane's weakness being Violet. The way that Varish just pokes at his ego and really just is like, well, she chose Zayden. And I think that right there is just emanating off of Dane and Varish is absolutely able to pick up on that. And that's his weakness. Dane's weakness is essentially being in love with Violet and she's the one who he can't have because, hey, she loves someone else. The line quote, the truth is waiting, wing leader Atos, and you are the only one who can see it. This sentence from Varish is masterful. First, quote, the truth is waiting. Last book, we learned that Dane's signet manifested because he's desperate to need to know everything. So the truth is waiting. This is calling to his desperate need to know everything. The second part, wing leader Atos, adhering to the fact that he has risen through the ranks and definitely has an ego about it. And third, you're the only one who can see it. Speaking of his ego, again, I'm not quiet on this podcast about Dane being a self-centered person. Varish is singling him out and boosting him up as the only person who can help the situation. It's, it's the perfect way to speak directly to that self-centered 
favorite part of Dane. Then of course, the he goes in for the kill. Quote, you could learn what she sees in him, why she chose him over you. God fucking damn it, Varish, what a snake. But to your point, Lex, he's boosting him up. He's boosting him up. And then he's going in for his deepest weakness. Why did she choose Zayden over Dane? This feels like Varish speaking to that self-sabotaging behavior. You know when like you go on social media to like stalk your ex and there's nothing good that can come out of it. Of course. Why would you do this? Like, why would you do this to yourself? This is Varish speaking to that part of Dane that's like, I want to know who my ex is seeing on Instagram. I want to know what they see in him and what he has that I don't have. Like, it's masterful. It's masterful from Varish here. Fucked, but masterful. Thank goodness. Dane's rule following, it finally comes in handy here. Varish is right. This scene was pretty anticlimactic, especially considering it's like, oh my God, oh my God, Dane's here. What this really does is it sets us up for what's to happen in what another 11 chapters or so, what happens in chapters 35 and 36 here. I love that Dane reaches for her with both hands. The fact that it's not just one hand, like, you know, how entirety of fourth wing, it was one hand. He like reaches for her with two hands. You're welcome, YouTube. There's a little thing to haunt your nightmares. But this little detail is enough for us readers to know just how badly Dane wants to know this information. I really do appreciate, though, Dane listening to, I don't know, the basic understandings of human consent. But damn, I really think he would have done it if she hadn't said no. I think it was like he he knew in his heart he didn't want to do it. And he kind of like had to hear her say it to follow through with that. But just really sets it up for like that question mark with him where it's like, wait, Because, you know, we've kind of gotten him trying to be a friend. He's been trying to extend an olive branch to her throughout this book. And we're all just like, no, like, go away, Dane. And this is a part where it's like, oh, like, maybe, maybe there is actually more to him here. And it just, again, sets us up for what's to come here with his redemption arc here. It's kind of like he's taking those first little steps towards his redemption arc right now. Well, and to piggyback off that, like, his redemption arc would feel so forced and unnatural if we hadn't had this moment. Like you're saying, this is what creates the oh my fucking God, he's actually cupping her face in chapter 36. Now, obviously, he puts on his little actor's hat when he does it and, you know, all that. I can't wait to talk about that scene. But it's a really important moment for us here to set up for that, oh my holy fuck, major air quotes, betrayal that happens in chapters 35, 36. I think one of our smartest things we've ever done is devote an entire episode to chapters 34 through 36. That was the smartest move we ever made. (laughs) People who hadn't finished the book yet are like, oh my gosh, what the heck happens in chapters 34 through 36? And it's like, oh, buckle up. Maybe we were less smart with doing chapters 20 through 27 in one episode, but here we are. (laughs) While we're pissed at Nolan for the role he ends up playing in in those later chapters that we were just discussing, I think he he really is a good guy in a bad situation. He wants to help Violet and her crew here, but he can't really do much. He does actually do quite a bit with just essentially helping set them up for this escape plan, which would otherwise be impossible. And I'm still mad at him about what he does later and the role that he plays, like I said, but I just, he is a good guy who's really in a bad situation here. Well, and lines like this really highlight that line of thinking. Nolan is asking if this information that Violet has 
that she's holding on to. Is it worth being tortured over? Is it worth watching her friends and squad mates be tortured over? And after she nods, yes, yes, it is. He says, quote, I think I've had my head buried in other matters for too long. This feels like such a caring line and dare I even say fatherly line. He really does care for her, which when he does drug her later in this book, it makes me think that he's being tortured, blackmailed, controlled in some way. I'm not saying in a venom way because I don't think he is venom, but tortured, controlled, blackmailed to do leadership's bidding where they literally have him drug her because they know that he's someone she would trust. And I think that honestly, it's this moment that they probably figured out Nolan is the one who tipped them off on how to get out of there, that they realized, oh, he's the one that she can trust. So we can have him give the lemonade to her and she'll trust him and drink it. And then we can torture the daylights out of her for like a week straight. I never thought of it that way. I, I kind of thought of it as because he's essentially saying, you made me have to do this. We are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves right now. But when he does, you know, give her that lemonade and, you know, she obviously drinks it, he's feels really bad for what he's done and the role that he is playing. But he also believes that she is not acting in Navarre's best interest. So I think more than anything, he has been manipulated into thinking that she is working for quote unquote the bad guys. And that's why he's like, I don't want to have to do this to you, Violet. Why did you turn on us kind of thing? And so I think that's a little bit more of his approach there once when it does get to those later chapters. And during this time here, he's recognizing she's got secrets and Varish wants her and he is seeing that nothing good is going to come of this here. In Fourth Wing, when Violet goes to see him for the first time because her, uh, when Imogen breaks her on the sparring mat, he says like, Something to the line, I don't have the book in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the lines of like, I've always thought it was cruel making all of the marked ones come into the writer's quadrant. I don't think he's entirely leadershipified when it comes to like be on the Navarre side. Like, I think he definitely sees both sides of the story, which again makes me think that Nolan's a tricky character. I want to learn more about him. I don't think he's making it out of this world alive. I think that he is definitely going to be a casualty in this in this story, but he's a tricky egg. This Nolan guy. <laughs> I, and again, I, I will stick to it where I think that he's a good guy who is in who is in way too deep with the bad guys here. And it's just he hasn't really made any choice one way or the other. He's just is the mender at Biscayeth. And with that comes a lot of gray area. <laughs> Yes. Now, I really want to dissect this conversation between Nolan and Varish as they start talking about Jack, which we don't know that they're talking about Jack. But in hindsight, we it's like, wow, this is quite the conversation. And it actually provides more questions than answers. We love our questions here on this podcast. So my first one is, why was Jack fucking Barlow in the infirmary again, insinuating that he doesn't just live there so he hasn't made his grand entrance back into the writer's quadrant yet that's a good question where is he spending his nights right now if he's not in the infirmary is there somewhere else that they keep the venom and then they just go to the infirmary when needed like is there a whole dormitory of venom where they have to bunk together and stuff <laughs> 
that would be a terrifying place to be. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. Now, Nolan also says that Varish's particular skills could be of use. So we have to wonder what particular skills is Nolan referring to? I'm assuming that he's referring to Varish's signet, which we later learn is to see the weakness in people. Now, how would that be of use with Jack and, and Venon and the concept of controlling them? Because I don't think that he's necessarily interrogating Jack here. Are we sure? Are we sure? I'm feeling like he's interrogating that. And I think that seeing their weakness would be super helpful because, I mean, I'm assuming a Venon's weakness is their craving to channel from the source and how it's almost oh. like a drug. But like, I would wonder if two, twofold, one, if seeing Jack's weakness would be to learn how to control him. Like if he's threatening, like let's, let's say Jack fucking Barlow's weakness is Caroline Ashton. <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> but like, let's say it is if he hung Caroline Ashton over Jack's head, maybe that's why Caroline's going to the infirmary so much to help out Nolan. If they're like beating Caroline and mending her over and over again to get answers out of Jack, that would be using both interrogation and his weakness signet in tandem. I have I have zero respect for Varish. I'm like, what's the worst thing you could do? That's what you're doing, I, sir. I, I think that that would absolutely be the case if this was like a month or two before this timeline right here. Because looking at the full picture with all of the context, Jack is going to be coming back into everyone's lives in just a few days. I, I don't think it's more than a week at least. And Nolan is saying that the sessions are failing. Now we know that he's actually able to mint his bones because he comes back and he's okay and he's able to walk around at least from the infirmary to other places. But there is something else that they are doing. They are trying to mend his soul. We already know that that Nolan has accidentally confessed. It sounds like that is what's failing in these sessions here. And so that again makes me wonder how could Varish's particular skills make these sessions successful that are considered mending the soul. That's why I'm really hung up on I don't think that it is necessarily interrogation. I think that it's really manipulation and trying to tap into a sense of humanity by appealing to his human weaknesses. Well so Nolan says I've done all that I can for him and and like you're saying, a few days later, he comes back into the wild. The fact that Nolan says, I've done all that I can for him, and that's the check mark, the, the you passed physical therapy, good job, to let him just roam out in the wild again is ridiculous. And like, great idea, guys. I just look at the broken wardstone and dead babe at the end of this book that we have. But like, the, the timeline here, something's missing. And we know that book three, we are going to get a lot more Jack fucking Barlow. Watch, Lexi, watch book three be a split perspective from Violet to Jack fucking Barlow. I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't hate it. <laughs> don't get me started. Like, I don't know. I don't think that's the case at all, but I don't know I don't how I would so feel either. about that. So going back to that phrase about Nolan saying he's done all he can for him, I actually look at it from a different perspective. I think that it's not necessarily Nolan saying I've done everything I can for him, and that's his version of saying you've passed physical therapy, using that analogy here. I think that's him coming to Varish and being like, hey, what I'm doing is not working well enough to have the success that we are looking for here. And then that is when Varish comes in and he uses his particular skills. And only after he does that is when then Jack is allowed to go back out into the wild. And so again, that brings me back to that big question of what does Varish do to Jack in this amount of time that makes these sessions 
a success when Nolan was not able to succeed. It's shit like this that convinces me that Varish is Venon. Because if Varish is Venon and he sits down with a young, a young Venon when he was a young Warthog, like, you know, it just sits what? down with him and says, <laughs> I love that you did that completely silently. <laughs> I watch a lot of Lion King with my children. <laughs> You can't say for that those, phrase. I mean, not go fully into a silent musical number. <laughs> for those who are listening or who are just listening to the podcast and not watching on YouTube, Lexi just full blown <laughs> acted out like she was Lion King on Broadway, but totally silently. So, but it does make me wonder, did Venice say something to him as like, I am, I am a wiser, older Venon. And, but also, I mean, he's not that much more venonified because he doesn't have like the red spider webs, you know, like he doesn't have like all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, I don't know. I have so many questions. So anyway, I, I no would, yep. answers. Yeah, so many questions, no answers. But something happened in those few days that Varish used his particular skills, which I'm going to guess is seeing the weakness in Jack. And something happened from that where it's like, okay, cool. Jack's good terrifying I know terrifying <laughs> let's move to battle brief yes so before we jump into this battle brief where chaos ensues with the pamphlet I have to ask what is up with the scribe with the hood up Violet notices a scribe and she can't make out exactly who it is but does kind of think it's a little bit weird and I don't think we ever get confirmation on who the scribe is but I have to wonder who is it and what were they doing here Nicole I love your answer here to this question so my question here is is that when Violet is explaining to her crew that to print this amount of pamphlets, it's a big fucking job. I wonder if Devera got help because, I mean, A, we don't know if Devera knows how to use a printing press. And even if she does, again, this is a big job. So I wonder if there was a scribe that she basically recruited in to help her. Now, was it Jacinia? I don't think so. I don't think so because I feel like if it was Jacinia, we would get confirmation later in the book. Now, we, we know that she also went to Arisha with two other scribes. So maybe this scribe is one of those two other scribes. Now, I, I can't remember. I'm, I'm doing my reread of part two right now. So I'm trying to remember some of these other details now. I don't remember, again, having ever having confirmation about who this scribe might be, if they do join the revolution. But I really do think that this scribe is here, was doing something with Devera, helping out with the pamphlets, and is now scurrying away. And I wonder if that scribe does technically come back into the picture later on in our book. You know who keeps popping up in this book too? Caroline Ashton. I'm so annoyed by her. I can't stand her. And I have no reason to, other than she's associated with Jack fucking Barlow. Which that right there is good reason. So she comes up to our crew and asks them, how did they escape? Because everyone else is absolutely baffled. And I love how our crew, they go for their weapons. It really shows how tense it is between the wings, especially with Caroline Ashton and First Wing here. It's like, ah, oh, there's just no trust between the wings. Of course, there is between squads. Like, that's the whole point here. But... Just one more illustration about that mistrust. It really makes me think that she's going to play a bigger role going forward in our story, which I'm not loving. But you know what? If Kat can get a redemption arc, if Dane can get a redemption arc, maybe Caroline Ashton can too. 
<laughs> or maybe she'll just turn out to be the big, big bad Venom. We'll just hate her forever. But I do think that we, especially since we're going to get more Jack fucking Barlow in book three, I do think that we are not finished with Caroline Ashton. I agree. And I do, the more I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I wonder if she is in some way involved with Jack, whether it's a romantic partner or just like a best friend partner. I have no idea. I do wonder how, how, what, what is their relation? Why is she always going into the infirmary to help Nolan with them? I have so many questions. I'm telling you, I think it's about tapping into his sense of humanity. Like PETA and Katniss. I, I, yeah, like Hunger I think Games that's 3. the best example yeah. there. Yeah. We got to talk about this pamphlet about Zolia and how it fell to Dragonfire. When I first read this, it was like, <gasps> like I loved how the secret is unraveling. The house of cards is falling apart and Markham is just desperately trying to keep it all stacked, right? Here's a little rundown of the pamphlet. Number one, blue fire dragons, aka wyvern and those three words in this order are very important blue fire dragons again aka wyvern attacked zolia it was a two-day battle ten thousand people died including the commander of bravix griffin fleet and all trade routes are stopped so that people do not go into the city and perish now what this means to me is that the venom they are literally killing anyone who comes into the city meaning they're not done with their bloodshed in zolia well they've just kind of like taken over zolia and it's like exactly yeah and they've just put up residence there which sucks because a lot of the books and the information that we get from zolia from the griffin flyers academy is about Venom later on. Like all the epigraphs are from Zolia and like books. So I'm guessing that they like, since it is something that Jacenia is using to write our story here, I'm wondering like, did they take them as they came out? Because if I was a Venom, that would be the first thing that I would destroy when we take Zolia. That actually does happen when they meet the Viscount and when they go back, he gives them a book about Venom. And I think that is the book that we get all those epigraphs from. So somebody, you know, when they were getting out of there, grabbed this book called The Book of Venom and was able to to get that out. And now it is in Arisha's possession. I love that we have the Book of Brennan and the Book of Venom. <laughs> so I love that the room does not quiet for Professor Markham. Like he like is trying to get all of their attention, but it instantly falls silent when Devera calls their attention. This just shows, now again, this is show don't tell of how little control Markham feels like he has right now, especially as literally, like you say, his entire house of cards is falling down. But Devera, who's goat, has all the control in this classroom. God, I fucking love her. Markham, I, I love how we get kind of a new perspective about him from a scribe's perspective, or at least a would-be scribe's perspective, where Violet is really reflecting back on this Markham that she knew growing up, like this, I'll call it a hard-ass teacher. And he's always been her mentor and all of that, but he's an asshole. He really is. Like, doesn't, I mean, yes, of course, he goes and kills people when they just ask for some simple information and are persistent about it. But he's also a real hard-ass teacher. And I just love getting this additional insight into him kind of from a different perspective here. Who do you think his equivalent of the Harry Potter professors would be? Would it be Umbridge? No. That or Quirrell? Is- Maybe Quirrell? Because he does kind of pretend that he's all like, little quiet Professor Malcolm. <laughs> like, I do love how well Violet knows him. Like this little tell of rubbing his forefinger against his thumb. And it's 
enough for her, which like she's sitting up in this major, major classroom. It's enough for her to be aware that he was not in control of any of this situation happening before their eyes. And it's enough for her to know that he is going to start discrediting, deflecting, and distracting. So his discredit is after all of the leaflets are collected, he says, when have we ever flown a riot of blue dragons? The sentence reads on the pamphlet, fallen to the blue fire dragons. But he's jumbled it up so it reads, fallen to the blue dragons fire. It's so smart. Like I do have to give him this. Like it is a very smart move from Markham's perspective. Then deflect. He mentions how they will return to the lesson at hand when they can tell the difference between propaganda. Like he like chastises them, almost knocking them down a peg. But then he mentions, ooh, a celebration is in order. And then distraction. And Lexi, you talk about this distraction. <sighs> oh, what a distraction we have. Jack fucking Barlow. Okay, I have to take a deep breath. It's time to talk about Jack coming back into our lives. Now, if you listen to our fourth wing episode six, you probably remember my very long explanation debunking the popular theory that Jack is actually still alive and a venom. And while we here at Fantasy Fangirls absolutely do not condone theory shaming on this podcast, I will admit that this was my least favorite theory because in my perspective, it went against logic. <laughs> Joke's on me. <laughs> I, when I first read this, I just started screaming and my husband was so concerned and like, what's wrong? And I just had to take a deep breath. I had to set down my book because all I could do for the next few hours was storm and stomp around just yelling, Jack fucking Barlow. I have such strong feelings about all of this. Okay. I hate him so much. Why is he back? (laughs) I will never forget reading this for the first time and just bursting into laughter. I think I actually even posted my reaction video on TikTok and Instagram. It was so funny to me for two reasons. One, why? Why? I was with you in the fact that I did agree with you that theory was not going to be correct. But the second reason is because I knew you went on a five-minute tangent on the podcast about it. And it was so (laughs) We've had so many listeners message us being like, I'm listening to the fourth wing. I'm on episode six and I'm just laughing about the Jack Barlow stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, that that lives on the Internet now, huh? (laughs) I talked about this in a reactions episode and I just need to say it again right now. I have the biggest egg on my face. Oh, my gosh. Biggest egg in the entire world just on my face. If there was one thing for certain heading into Iron Flame, I would have said that Jack is dead and he is most certainly not a Venon. And I rightfully, I still think rightfully believed this because to our knowledge, you can't become a Venon within the wars or while bonded to a dragon. Apparently not. Anyway, I owe you Jack is Alive theorists an apology because you were right and I was wrong. And may episode six live on in infinity as something we can all look back on and laugh. So fuck you, Jack Barlow. Oh my God. While I logically understand why he was brought back, I just don't think I'll ever get over it. I I just don't like being wrong. I can handle being wrong about the intrinsic theory that Nicole would go on and on and on about, but this is a whole other thing. Anyway, 
Back to the story here at hand. My first question when reading this was, why bring Jack of all people back? Why mend a broken cadet when so many fall? And the answer, as we learned at the end of this book, is it's because he's a venom. That's the only possible answer here about why leadership would bring Jack of all people back. I expect we'll learn more about him in book three, but I'm assuming that after the mountain of rock fell on him, leadership retrieved him because they knew he was venom and they saw this opportunity to experiment on him. They didn't actually care about mending him as a person. If he was just Jack, they wouldn't have taken this time and effort to mend him back together, or they would have done something like this with the hundreds of other cadets who fall from the parapet or off their dragon or the gauntlet. There's a lot of ways to shatter your body at Beskyeth, but they wanted to mend a venon, a probably very weak and broken venon who they would have the upper hand with from the get-go. That is the only explanation about why they would bring Jack of all people back. It's notable that in this sequence here of Jack's big reveal of him coming back from the dead, essentially, is that Jack finds Violet in the crowd pretty quickly. And that didn't feel like a coincidence to me where he's like searching her out and targeting her. And now it it doesn't feel like it's a target in this way. But with all of the context that we have for later in the book, you gotta wonder about how he sees her so quickly. Well, we know that the Venon are on the hunt for Violet. They know where Violet and Zayden are at all times. So I wonder if now that he's Venon, he has this like sixth sense for Violet's signet, or if he's talked to the other Venon higher ups and they're like, hey, that Violet girl, we really want her. I don't know how he would have done that, when he would have done that, but also he has the boxes at the end. He's luring the Venon here. So how does he... I. I just, I can't, I cannot, Lexi, I cannot believe I'm saying these words right now. I want a Jack Barlow POV so I know what the fuck is happening. I don't even say those words, Nicole. <laughs> I do. I want to know what's fucking happening. So, someone write a Jack Barlow fanfic and send it to Nicole. <laughs> Notably, Jack does not have red eyes here, or at least Violet doesn't notice them when she's describing his glacial blue eyes. She's also very far away from him. So we know that when she sees Zayden, the red ring around his irises is almost indistinguishable. But we also know it does come and go depending on how much you you channel. So I wonder if it's just too far away, but the glacial blue eyes feels very on the nose here. So I'm assuming that because he's been working with air wielders and we know the air wielders are lifting him up so he can't channel or at least that's our assumption so maybe he just no no Nicole there's a whole other theory have you heard it about how the air wielders actually push the mending ability and I still like my theory I know it's not accurate and why the air wielder was there but I still stick by my signets working together for something new I agree completely with you. I agree completely. (laughs) But I do think that here and now he has not channeled from the source for a while. Correct. Now, again, we know a few days ago, Varish needed to use his particular skills on him because whatever Nolan was doing wasn't working enough. Brings back those questions that we were asking a little while ago there. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Wait. If Varish's venom is his particular skills... Would that mean that he's teaching <gasps> Jack how to live amongst the wild as a venon? But that would mean Nolan also knows that Varish is venon. Or maybe he just like closes the door and is like, work your magic, boys. But then we also know that Nolan has previously said there is no cure, there is only control. So I would guess he would know that about Varish. Oh, man. 
That opens up a huge can of worms. Oh my god. <laughs> when Violet notes that Andarna isn't common knowledge either after learning that Bade kept this big secret from the other dragons, I have to wonder, do most other dragons not know about Andarna either? Because I would imagine her, you know, being a feathertail and bonded, like none of that's a secret. Nothing about Andarna with the dragons is a secret. But the way that this is phrased, that dragons keep secrets from each other. And she's like, oh, well, obviously that makes sense because of Andarna. And it's like, I'm I- confused. I'm pretty sure Indarna is being guarded by the elders as she's in the dreamless sleep. So I actually, I do think that she is a secret. I understand that with being in the dreamless sleep and being guarded by the elders and whatnot, but that's something that all hatchlings go through. So that shouldn't be a secret among the dragons, except if her being the seventh den, of course, would be a huge secret, but that's something that Violet doesn't know yet. Well, I'm going to be handing the mic over to Nicole here in just a few minutes, but let's talk about their next trip to Samara. Nice little bookends here, starting in Samara and ending this chapter stretch in Samara too. I'm so excited. So first and foremost, I need a shout out to Devera, who scratches the left side of her neck. She just continues to win the Teacher of the Year Award. But I do wonder, how much do you think is... Taryn's emotions versus Violet's emotions, that deep worry for their, their love interest. Like if you had to give a percentage, what do you think the percentage is, Taryn versus Violet? I'd say that they have the same feelings, but Taryn's is more powerful and of course overwhelming Violet so that it's all just tangled up. If I had to give a percentage, I'd say like 70 or 80% Taryn, 20 to 30% Violet, but they are 50-50 and being on the same page with the same emotions, if that makes sense. It's just Taryn being that much more bigger and powerful and stronger. His same emotions that she feels is just overwhelming hers. I couldn't have said it better myself. I agree completely with your percentage splits and the 50-50 as well. So also Taryn being worried for Sergale. I love the moments where we get little mentions of their relationship. And I just, I love seeing their love. It makes me so, like later on with their little tail swishes that are just, yeah. <laughs> I love how we were both just thinking about that in the same moment. Yes. <laughs> I love that. It makes me so happy. I also love that when Violet arrives at Samara, she sees Zayden and Zayden is on the mat. He's sparring and he's dissing Garrick for being slow. When Zayden literally almost lost his arm yesterday and he's not the slow one, it's fucking Garrick. It's just like, wow, dude. Fucking flex, my guy. I love it. It's time to go into the bathing chamber. I'm so excited. Now, Zayden knowing exactly what to do with the cold shower technique. First and foremost, I fucking hate cold showers. They are the worst. (laughs) Me too. My husband, however, loves them. He is a unicorn some ways because he does a 90 second cold blast every morning where he turns the shower as cold as it will go and just like stands in the cold water for 90 seconds. I did an ice bath once after a half marathon and I bitched the entire time and I will never do it again. But secondly, I do wonder, because he knew exactly what to do, did he do this a lot when his intrinsic signet manifested? Something to almost like shock his mental faculties back to being his own before he learned how to control it from working with Segale. I do imagine that if Jeremiah, RIP my guy, in Fourth Wing, would he have gone as apeshit if if someone just like threw a bucket of ice water on top of him? Or would he still have been going absolutely crazy? I love this idea. I love this idea of Zayden knowing what to do of like kind of like recollecting your 
thoughts, so to speak here, and really getting that control back of yourself just from that shock factor there and how that probably did play a big role. We've wondered how in the world was he able to hone in that signet and not pull a Jeremiah, so to speak. And I think that this might be one of his little tricks and techniques here is, yeah, cold, cold shower to get him centered again, you know? Love it. Jealous Satan. Delicious. Delicious. I love that it is Bodhi's jacket especially because how many times in the book is there parallels between him and Zayden? I love the fact that Zayden is just like, she just went and got herself a doppelganger Zayden epic guy. <laughs> like it's, that's how he's fucking jealous. I love it. And then I love Violet's response to him when she's just like, are you kidding me right now? Like after everything she just went through, it's like, oh my gosh, I would have been exactly Violet in that moment. Exactly her. <laughs> big same. Big same. It's time. Yes, I have Nicole. Waited, I have waited four episodes for a sex scene and here we are. I'm so ready. I will stand on this for my fellow romantic lovers. I am here as your advocate. This scene is perfect. <laughs> It's fucking perfect. Starting with how Zayden says, you were worried about me? As if it's a revelation. First off, how is this the first time he's fucking thinking this? I love you, Zayden, but goodness. Secondly, it just shows how often he is used to putting the weight of everyone else on his shoulders. I mean, see the scars. But to have someone worried about him is so new. I mean, if his ex is any measuring stick of how people just don't give a especially the women in his life. I mean, his mom left when he was 10. He is so not used to women giving a flying fuck about who he is. He's only used to them giving a flying fuck about his name. And just to have someone worried about him just oh, makes me so happy. Also, wow, does Rebecca Yaros know how to write sexual tension? Because when he initiates, it is fucking sweet glory. I love it. Violet needing him to need her. And fucking fair because no one ever wants to be the initiator all the time. It has to have a balance into it. And the fact that she's like, oh my gosh, yes, he finally is showing me that he needs me. I think she needed that from him. And I don't think he got that, Zayden. This is an all-time Violet moment. When she's unpinning her hair, she says, quote, you want to fight for me? Then take a chance without knowing how I feel. You want my heart back? Risk yours first this time. I loved that. I loved that part so much because it's so true. Like we, we talk so much about the complexities of the relationship and how each of their feelings are valid. But this right here, it's like, yeah, Zayden, you have been playing it a little bit safe. He doesn't think of it like that at all. And I can understand why he thinks that. But right here where she's like, you need to risk yours first for this time. It's kind of like a little check there to him where it's like, oh, okay, I can see your perspective there. Yeah. Her doing her hair and her armor all while saying, I'm telling you that I don't just want you. I need you there. There are your three words. That's all you get. Take me or leave me. This felt like a very notebook moment. I'm not a big notebook fan. I actually really don't like that movie, but it does feel very like that heightened tension. The water is like, it's not a rain scene. You know, that's like a big like romance trope is like the rain is when they're like, I love you. But it's like the rain from the shower head. I just think that's so funny. But like her undoing her hair, such a nice callback to the previous book when he's like, if you ever need to bring me to my knees or when an argument, just let your hair down. I was wondering when that moment was going to be used, but I wonder if we're not quite done with it. I think we're definitely going to see it in the future, especially with this whole, you know, venom dynamic now. <laughs> I don't want to think about it. I want to shout out all my theater nerds who suddenly had rents take me or leave me stuck in their head after reading this passage from Violet. Just 
What a good scene. Now, Lexi, did I have a shower sex scene on my bingo card? No. No, I did not. But am I very obsessed with it? Yes. Yes, I am. I will say getting out of the wet leather, I only saw that scene from Friends where Ross is too hot in his leather pants and he takes them off, but then he can't get them back on. Did it ruin the mood for me, though? Absolutely not. Not in the slightest. You're saying you got the hots for Ross, too? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I do kind of have Because I'm more of a Ross. Joey girl. Oh, yeah. I, to be honest, I would have ended up with Chandler. That would 100% would have been my guy to end up with. <laughs> Love him. R.I.P. I know. We miss you every day. So we get an intrinsic moment in this sex scene as well. And I'm pretty sure we get one in every single sex scene in Fourth Wing and Iron Flame, with the exception of Chapter 33. I'm pretty much 99% sure on those. I love how you just know this. Lexi, these are my two favorite things, intrinsic speculation and sex scenes. I don't know. What's the disconnect there? Violet says, quote, I will die if he makes me wait any longer. I won't survive another breath without him inside me. Not in italics. This is not in italics. To which he replies out loud, I need you more, Violet. It's not quite as satisfying now that we have intrinsic confirmed, but I will say it's still pretty satisfying. I've said it once and I will say it again. Zayden Ryerson telling Violet to let go. Holy hell, is that the hottest thing? Honestly, it's just like in any smut literature, any guy saying like, let go for me is the hottest thing I can ever think of fucking ever. But then he one-ups himself with a, I can't give this up. I won't give this up. Now let go. Fucking destroy me, Zayden. I swear to God. Last thing I will say on the scene before Lexi <laughs> starts rolling her eyes at me because I've done this for like 10 minutes now. <laughs> when he is listing his options, option three, quote, we can clean up find a water wielder to dry off our clothes, get you in one of my flight jackets and fly to the rendezvous point to drop the daggers. He's still on the fucking flight jacket territorial bullshit and I'm so here for it. All right. Anything to add, Lexi? No, it's great. I don't even have to really do it much for chapter 27. I was like, all right, Nicole's got this handled. <laughs> it was like 1130 last night and I was able to shut my computer. <laughs> I can't wait till we cover Indarna's dragon reveal and I'm just going to sit back and let you take it. We each have our strengths and I love it. I love it. Last thing on our key insight section is the death of me count. We had one in fourth wing and unfortunately it is time to start one again for Iron Flame. In our shower sex scene, he says, quote, death of me, I swear. That means the total death of me count for Iron Flame is officially one. Now, as a reminder, the total count for fourth wing was three. And this is also just Zayden saying those specific words, not insinuations, not just like one off, like kind of as a saying in this world, this is going to be the gauntlet's going to be the death of me, so on and so forth. This is specifically Zayden saying it to Violet. That's four more than I want there to be. I'm a little nervous about all of that language. And it is very prominent in this book as well as it was in Fourth Wing. Winter is here, at least here in the real world. We'll get there soon enough in our story. And that means struggling to find the right temperature when I sleep. But somehow I'm still the sweatiest sleeper when it's like negative five degrees outside. But Lexi and I have recently found a way to stay the perfect 
temperature all night long using silver-infused bed sheets by Miracle Made. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at that perfect temperature all night long, helping you get better sleep every single night. I slept in ours for the first time last night, and oh my God, this morning was the first time I woke up not needing to take a shower. I am postpartum, and after you have children, Nicole, you think you sweat a lot now? Wait until you have kids. Oh man, I don't know what happens, but your hormones go crazy. These sheets are glorious and husband approved. And Miracle Sheets are the perfect gift for you, your spouse, friends, or family who doesn't want a better night's sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets. And since these come with three, count it, three free towels, you get two gifts in one just in time for the holidays. So upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash FF and use our code FF to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash FF to treat yourself, a friend, or a loved one this holiday season. All right, let's move on to foreshadowing, Nicole. The Tearish Knots book. We will see this come into play majorly in our story with the entrance of runes. Zayden can weave every knot in that book and wants her to learn an aspect of Tearish culture. Yes, he wants her to have a leg up on runes class, but I also think that this is because he sees her needing to know a lot about Tearish culture someday as the Duchess of Tyrandor. Zayden not being a good measure of Violet's blood Locking skill. Of course, A, when you're bonded to him, he's able to cut through your shields like lace, but B, when you're also an intrinsic, I would imagine shielding him out is quite hard to do. We get another mention about the Isles in history class when discussing what was sacrificed. Travel, including to the Isles, is one of the things that was sacrificed. I guarantee we will go to the Isles later on in the series. Iron Flame is where it really starts priming us for this location's upcoming role. Do you think this is where Zayden's mom is? Very possibly. I am still very much in the camp that she is from poor Emil because of just his close connections to all of them. So yeah, we'll see. We will see. Oh my God, I can't wait. Riddick says, quote, it's why leadership flew out of here like the wards have fallen, to which Dane says, you would know if they have fallen. Correct. You would know. And yes, they will fall. Womp womp. Big bad. Ree says that she can't summon objects through walls yet, although she's close. I hear all of the supporting points for Violet's second signet being amplification, and Ree's sudden ability to summon through walls is a main supporting point for this amplification second signet. But I want to point out that we've been primed since she first learned of her signet that this will eventually happen for Ree. She just has to hone it. So all of this buildup to her being able to summon through walls when it matters most makes me think it really is just Ree and her signet getting more powerful and Violet didn't have anything to do with it. I personally don't think that Violet's second signet manifests until part two, but that is a theory for a different day. I was going to say, yes, we are going to be covering Violet's second signet. However, we will be covering it more in part two when Andarna is awake. So stay tuned, folks. It is coming. Quote, a rescue sounds great in theory, but would fuck all of us. Well, a rescue will happen later in this book. And while I won't say it fucks them, it definitely changes their plans for the rest of the semester. Varish baits Dane, saying he can see what really happened that day at War Games to Violet and the Marked Ones. He's so confident that Dane will stay on their side once he learns the truth, because he will inevitably learn the truth at some point. However, that is kind of when Dane's brainwashing goes away, and all of a sudden he kills Varish and he's with the rebel side. The runes on Violet's dagger unlock the door. We later 
learn that Zayden specifically gave her these runes that can magically unlock any door when she's in need. When Professor Devera is handed the leaflet about Zolia, Violet hopes that she's the person she thinks she is, and she does indeed turn out to be good. In fact, Devera ends up being the one responsible for the leaflets, although I admit I'm a little surprised she folds the leaflet and pockets it, like if she was responsible for it in the first place, why would she take that risk? I too had that question. Talking about Jack fucking Barlow. Quote, he's hardly the worst thing I faced last year. I brought down not only one, but two Venon. Maybe Jack's changed. Number one, I love that they're talking about Jack and then immediately talking about Venon. That's a nice little tie-in for us readers. But number two, Jack definitely has not changed. He is literally a monster in the last part of this book, not only killing his own dragon, but destroying the Wardstone. Zayden, quote, I'm never in control when it comes to you. Zayden will need to remind Violet a lot of this in the book, but most specifically at Viscount Dakaris's house when Kat is being a little bitch, making Violet doubt everything she knows about her man, needing Zayden to literally pull a shall I get the wing leader moment and flood her memories with moments of him losing control. It is time to step into the archives where each episode Lexi educates us all on a prominent world building topic from this stretch of chapters. Today's archives topic is alloy. To make sure I covered all of my alloy info collecting bases, I reached out to our Discord and got some help putting the finishing touches on this. So thank you to Brooke, Shannon, Selly Queen, Sandador, and Sarah T. Shout out to our Patreon, where when you join at either cadet or dragon tier level, you get access to our Discord as well. It's a very fun place, and you can also help us with outlines on there. All right, let's kick it off with the basics. What is alloy? It is a substance that powers the extended wards. Alloy stored in these outposts tugs the wards forward, extending them twice as far as they normally reach in some cases. Alloy holds power, but it is not power in and of itself. Alloy is also the one material that can kill venom. How very handy for our crew. What is alloy made out of? A combination of talidium, a few other ores, and dragon eggshells. Now, why dragon eggshells, you ask? Because they are metal and still carry magic long after the dragons hatch. I have some big questions about how anybody is able to retrieve these dragon eggshells. I suppose maybe like Sigale and other revolution-sided dragons will like collect them and like sneak them out of the veil, but Anyway, what is talendium, you ask? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. While it's not actually a real metal, we can assume it's a play on palladium, which, quote, has been used figuratively to mean anything believed to provide protection or safety. And in some contexts, it's a sacred relic or icon believed to have a protective role in military contexts for a whole city, people, or nation. Troy is a great example of palladium used in the figurative terms. I thought this was awesome. I also went down a rabbit hole and found a company named Talidium, and this is from its about page. Yes, I am quoting a random company's about page. Talidium, founded by Edward J. Harms in 1983, began as a strategic move to manufacture a non-precious alloy for the 100-person dental lab he co-owned. At the time, gold was extremely high, so he created a successful formula known worldwide today as Teletite Alloy. How did I get to reading an about page for a dental lab's manufacturer while talking about a fantasy dragon books. These are the rabbit holes that I go down, folks. Alloy activates when it is imbued with power from writers. So what does imbuing mean? It's the process of transferring power into an object, and it's not a common skill. In fact, the art of imbuing only comes naturally to 
a handful of signets and automatically to only one. You guessed it, folks, the siphon. There is another kind of ore that isn't used to make alloy, and it's called mayersite. Now, it is not as rare as talidium, but it is 10 times as explosive, which is the same explosive the Mari family is known for. So you can imbue this mayersite and boom, it becomes extra explosive. I think that's how I understand it here. It's important to note that this alloy component, what it's made up of is top secret. Mira, when Violet asks her about it, says it's above their rings. It's above their clearance. Don't ask these questions. And then Zayden, a few pages later, ends up telling Violet when he really shouldn't have told her this. It's kind of like a big secret that he just revealed there. Now, moving forward to what is alloy used for? So we already said that it is the one material that can kill venom. So it is obviously made into weapons to defend against the venom, specifically daggers with alloy-infused hilts described as metal discs or medallions. And it also includes tearish rune in the handle. Now, whether that rune is absolutely necessary for, with that alloy-infused hilt, I'm not quite sure there. When the alloy is imbued, it hums with power. I just love that. And these medallions hold the extra power that then boost the wards and extend them. So more alloy equals stronger wards at these outposts. The more alloy-infused daggers they have, the stronger the wards are at this outpost. Now, we got to ask, why daggers? Zayden believes Melgren saw a battle where they won against the Venon and used these daggers. So that's why everybody's like, yep, it has to be daggers because there has been a premonition that daggers will be one of the things that conquer the Venon. Now, to make these weapons, you need a luminary that intensifies dragonfire hot enough to smelt the alloy into the weapons. Like I mentioned, alloys also used to power the wards. The more of this alloy material, the stronger the wards. I've said that a million times. Is worth saying again. This alloy can only hold so much power, and once it's used, like for powering the wards, it has to be imbued again, which means the wards, they naturally falter no matter what, no matter how well powered they are, because they're already extended to their max at these outposts. The way I think of it, it's running low on battery and needing to recharge, and the battery that powers these wards is the alloy. And wow, that was actually a quite a short archive section, but I know that there's so much confusion around alloy, and then we are absolutely going to do a future archives on the wards, the ward stones, and all of that is connected here to the alloy. I truly don't know what I would do without these archive sections. I would not understand the book nearly as well as I do without these archive sections from you. So thank you. Now let's close out this episode with taking flight with our favorite moments. Quote, the thing that happens later that I'll block out like my life depends on it. This makes me realize that we actually did not get any dragon sex on the pages of this book. But that also made me realize, do you ever think Andarna's going to have a dragon fling? I don't know. But if she does, I want to be with Eric's dragon. <laughs> I love this idea. Quote, I'm not sure how it's possible, but I simultaneously want to climb the man and kick him hard in the shins. We all know that feeling about our significant others. <laughs> Lord, ain't that the truth? Quote, I can handle pain. I live in pain. I practically built a house there and set up a whole economy. I love sassy Violet. She's amazing. Quote, she tilts her head to the side and studies me, saying more than I want her to, like always. This is such a sister thing. Like, there's a look you give me sometimes where I'm like, she sees into my soul. Oh my God. And it's very real. You love me. And then Zayden says the most heartbreaking line, maybe you're not the one I'm reminding. Oh, I like, had to reread that a few times. I was like, wait, what? And then once when I understood what he was really saying, it's like, oh, Zayden. 
I said it in the episode and I have to say it again here. I'm falling in love with Arik. He explains that his dad, the king, thinks he's drinking and fucking his way across the kingdom for his 20th birthday tour. And when Violet challenges that, hey, that sounds like more fun, I would agree. He's like, what part of this isn't fun as he holds his broken wrist? And it's like, he's got that arrogance. He's got that swagger. Like, I love him so much. Violet thinking that telling Zayden he can't do something is the one way to make him push harder. I spot a rebel right here. Without going too far down the rabbit hole, there is something called the four tendencies that Nicole and I really love. It's not quite a personality test, but you know what, Nicole, if you can link the the quiz in the show notes just for people to have fun with, one of the tendencies is a rebel. And oh boy, oh boy, is Zayden a rebel. Lexi, should we say what tendency we are? Should we let people guess? I don't, I think everyone's going to guess exactly, at least what mine is. (laughs) Yeah, Nicole and I are questioners in those four tendencies. And we'll maybe we'll dive into it all that at another point. But anyway, Zayden is absolutely rebel, and I just love seeing that. In this same sequence, we get a little dose of Sigale, who we loved so much in Zayden's POV chapters. She says, fine, but only so this conversation ends. Like, ah, I miss you, Sigale, sassy pants. Quote, remember, it's only the body that's fragile. You are unbreakable. This reminds me so much of the quote from Fourth Wing, I am infinite. I love lines like this. It just, ugh, my heart. Professor Grady, I love my guy. Quote, is it going to be fun? Absolutely not. Are we going to show you mercy? Also, no. I think that one of the reasons I love him so much is because Rebecca Solaire, who does the audiobook narration, portrays him perfectly. Like every intonation she does with him is just like chef's kiss good. Rebecca Solaire, you have my entire heart. Riddick says, quote, is now a good time to admit that I haven't done this portion of the reading. I never want to be in a group project with Riddick. I love him, but man, oh man, I would kill him. Violet's big confession that she's in love with Zayden and everyone just already knows it. It's kind of like when they're all like sitting around, was it like having lunch or something like that? And she says something about Zayden and they all just go boo and this is kind of that same situation where they're like yeah we already know this Violet like tell us something we don't know That's at the party with the lavender lemonade at the beginning of the book. Yeah, that's when it was. I love the way that Violet carries herself during interrogation and how, of course, she wouldn't break. The comment about how she has quite the mouth for a general's daughter. Who do you think I got it from? I just, I love our feisty girl. And I also love how the interrogator genuinely smiled too. It just shows that Violet does have a really good comeback. Violet to Taryn after escaping. Quote, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. Taryn says, of course you are. I chose well. (laughs) God, I love him. And of course course, after the shower sex scene, Zayden is listing off his three options and Violet's like rustling to putting her clothes on to go meet up with the Griffin Flyers. And he says, I guess that's a no to options one and two. Like that's just such a good line. I love horny Zayden. He makes me so happy. Well, that's it, folks. Next episode, we will be covering chapters 28 through 34. And oh my gosh, we only have two more episodes of part one. Nicole, these are considered like the easy episodes before we get into what is part two of this book. (laughs) This is considered an easy episode. We covered the shower sex scene, Jack fucking Barlow coming back to life, interrogation number one, Samira at Samara. This was not for the faint of heart and we did it. (laughs) Thank you to our executive producer, Hayden, who is also our sanity manager. We truly love you. And hey, we've mentioned it a few times, but you know we have to mention it again. If you are interested in joining the Patreon party, please go to the link in our show notes. We have two tiers, the five 
$5 cadet and the $10 dragon riders. Thank you so much for your support for our show and for making this a dream come true for Nicole and I. It means everything to us. And if you're not already following us on Instagram and TikTok, what are you doing? Go ahead, give us a follow at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. You can also rate and review the show on whatever podcasting platform you are listening on. It helps us so much with going up the charts, with showing up higher on the YouTube searches. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and or liked and subscribed on YouTube. We love you. And last but not least, share this with your fellow Iron Flame friends, your friends who also don't know how to feel about Dane and need some help finding the way. We're probably not going to be of any help in this episode, but you know what? At least you can scream God fucking damn it, Dane, together. Thank you so much, everyone. We will see you next week with episode five. Bye. You know how she's doing her bye bye? Jake's like, you know, you should make a recording of that. And anytime somebody dies, do Mackenzie's bye bye. <laughs> we got further this time. <laughs> I'm very proud. <laughs> Thank you. Bang, bang, bangity bang. I said a bang, bang, bangity bang. Shower sex has entered the chat. But let me try that again without a lisp. <laughs> I lost my place. One moment. Okay. <laughs> you have to just there we go. Vacant, vacant look on your face. <laughs> and because they know readers leave. And be- and because they know readers leave, <laughs> and because they know readers leave, lead busy. Li- oh my god! <laughs> and because they know readers leave, stop laughing. <laughs> Sorry. I was hello, small child. I just love how we do this, and then the finished product is the finished product. It's really. I want to see the unedited. It's like no, you do not. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs>